What is up? Good morning. Hello, how is everybody? Today is Sunday, August 23rd, 2020, and this is the QTR Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here. The reason that you have an internet connection, also at the same time the bane of your existence. My podcast wears many hats, and I'm happy to be here and wear all of them. First and foremost, today's podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are the engine that keep this podcast running. They are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of those patrons, and then I am going to give you the two rules for the podcast, and we're going to get on with talking to the man, Peter Schiff. First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is my exclusive gold and silver provider. As a matter of fact, I just ordered some silver from them uh, two weeks ago. Just got it. Uh, Turnaround was quick. Shipping was quick. Packaging was discreet. All around excellent experience as it always is ordering from JM Bullion. QTR podcast listeners have their own dedicated salesperson. You can check out Kathy at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email, K-A-T-H-Y at jmbullion.com. Tell her you're a QTR podcast listener. Tell her you want $5 off your order. Tell her you want free shipping. She will make sure that you get taken care of. And there is also a link to JM Bullion in my podcast description. JM Bullion has been around for a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They have a great reputation, not only from their customers, but amongst those in the industry. Very well-respected Great inventory always, wonderful place to do business, so check out my friends at JM Bullion, my exclusive gold and silver provider. This podcast is also brought to you by my friend Sang Lucci and the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The Sang Lucci Steam Room is Wall Street's, essentially it was Wall Street's first ever unusual options activity room, piece of software that would track unusual options activity. Before everybody on Wall Street was doing it, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus were the OGs of tracking illiquid money coming into the options market and then trying to follow that money and see if it would move equity. So these guys have been doing it longer than anybody else out there. They have refined their software, the Steam Room, over the last 10 years. It is aesthetically a beautiful piece of software to use. It can pay for itself very quickly if you don't trade like a herb. These are the guys that originated the terms call sweepers, put sweepers, all the everyday terms you hear on a daily basis, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. These guys were at the very genesis of that, and not too many people even know that. So if you want to check out a wonderful piece of software that is worth its weight in gold and join a wonderful community with honest people all looking to get paid, check out the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The link to that's in my podcast description. Lucci will give you a trial if you ask him. No doubt he is a buddy of mine, good person to do business with. So check out the Sanglucci Steam Room. He also offers the 3LT Playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader, and the Sanglucci Master Course, how you can get a financial education without all the bullshit and jargon that you would normally get uh, from other financial education services. All those links are in my podcast description. Look Lucci up. He'll take care of you. Another guy that'll take care of you, my friend Pete Hedges over at the Trader's Path. If you can get in touch with Pete, I am giving you a guarantee right now. He will give you a discount on his trading community, which is called The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path was started by Pete because Pete got tired of other day trading communities where he felt like they were just in it to front run him. He felt like they were taking his money and didn't give a shit about his success. 
Um, and we know a lot of trading services are like that. All you got to do is log on to YouTube and watch a couple of ads that pop up on your feed. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but blech is all I'm going to say about that. So Pete wanted to start a community that was focused on the traders in it. Pete's community provides daily watch lists. They do a live stream of their trades every day. They do investor education. They trade in red markets. They trade in greed markets. They trade in stocks and options. It's a great place to get ideas. It's a great place to bounce ideas off of other people. And it's just, in general, a wonderful community to surround yourself with. And the best part is... I know Pete Hedges. He's an honest guy. He's a great guy to do business with. If you contact him, link is in my podcast description. There is no doubt he will also hook you up with a discount. He'll give you a free trial. Lucci will too if you want it. Uh, I know these guys going back some time now, so they will work with me, which means they will work with you, ladies and gentlemen. All right. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at Traders for a Cause. Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, some of my newest patrons, Brian Kilgannon, what's going on, brother? Matt Wright, thank you so much for your support. Evan Crochet or Crochet, whatever one you're down with, I'm down with too. The real CMFG, what's going on in the house? Shane Yeakley is here. Shane, I appreciate that donation very much. Thomas Haberl is in the house. Uh, Darmiad McGonagall, all right. Tough break with the name, but happy to have you on board. Nasca Vanden is in the house. Jordan Weaver. Fidelis Atsuveus is in the house. John McBride. Thank you, brother. Sam Kotler and Sivair Wallen is in the house still. And Robert Mintner and Corey Matthews. Thank you guys so much. Going back a couple weeks in August. I appreciate your continued support. Finally, some people that have been with me for a minute and have been supporting the podcast like Gerald and Ivan Johnson. Thank you so much. Marco Vitti. What's going on, brother? Brent Dover. My friends at Flow Algo, Pivotal Capital, thank you so much, guys. Greg Buckholes and Jay Propez. Uh, Lawrence Laparte is still with me. And Jeff Barnes, what's up, brother? Thank you for your continued support going back to December of last year. This podcast has a two-drink minimum. That means take two alcoholic drinks to the face. It's a Sunday, folks. So we're going to have a couple of cocktails and talk a little bit of shit today. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to figure out the whole giant big cesspool that is the global economy. It's disgusting. It's filthy. It's perverse. It's pornographic. But we got to start figuring it out. Otherwise, we're going to wake up one morning with our heads all sewn to the carpet. And that's not going to be a good feeling. This podcast... What else? Come on, idiot. Wake up. Oh, yeah. I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not a financial advisor. I hold no licenses. I hold no registrations. None of this is financial advice. I own gold and silver. Peter owns gold and silver. Please don't take our advice. We have a saying on this podcast. It's fun to say and it's fun to do. It's called do your research elsewhere, fools. Please. I don't want to hear your bitching and whining and complaining when things don't go your way. And if things go great, I don't want to hear that either. Tell it to your therapist. Seek help. Don't, don't email me about it. All right, with that being said, let's get started. All right, he rolled his ass out of bed at 8 o'clock in the morning for me this morning. Very happy to have on my dear friend and my favorite economist, Mr. Peter Schiff. Sir, thank you for, uh, for getting up out of bed this morning early to come on, talk to me and my degenerate listeners who are no doubt going to be in bed for at least another three or four hours. So they appreciate the effort, though, on behalf of them. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, happy to be here. And actually, I wasn't asleep at least, so I, you didn't wake me up, but I was still in bed. 
<laughs> All right. In fairness, though, it wasn't like I just called you out of uh, nowhere this morning. We had we had pre-existing, uh, we had a binding contract to do this this morning, so I don't feel too bad. Yeah, well, you know, I I, I could forget easily. You know, when you get get to be my age. Oh, I know. Plus, when it's the weekend, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> Were you drinking any of that uh, wine by delivery last night? That may have been the problem as well. No, I did have I did have some mojitos though. Oh, what kind of rum did you use? Do you know? No, because I didn't make them. <laughs> ah, that's even better. Those are the best kinds of mojitos. <laughs> All right, well, Peter, listen, man, there's a lot going on. Uh, I actually normally probably wouldn't have you back on this soon, but there's been like four or five things that I want to get your take on. And certainly, of course, I listen to your podcast, so I've been taking in what you've been saying, but also at the same time jotting down uh, some questions that I've come up with and taking in some questions that my my listeners have sent me. But first and foremost, let's just talk about this. Let's talk about Warren Buffett buying Barrick Gold, which I know you did an entire podcast on. And I want you to first address, how do you address the criticism that, ah, hey, Look, Peter, he's buying He's buying a gold company. He's not buying physical gold, number one. Number two, it probably wasn't even Buffett. It was probably one of his minions. And number three, it's only a five, only a $560 million position. Maybe he just peppered it into the portfolio for a little diversification, and he hasn't really uh, turned tail and become a gold bug. Yeah, well, you know, I think the natural tendency from Main Street – or, or mainstream rather, might be to try to dismiss this, right? That's, you know, your first thing. Hey, why is Buffett uh, doing this? And, you know, even though Buffett has talked in the past about, you know, why he owned gold, you know, it just sits there. Um, he has always said that he prefers businesses as an inflation hedge, that he right. thinks that buying a business – where you have real tangible assets, where you have pricing power, that that is a better way to uh, hedge against inflation. But Warren Buffett seems to have a very good understanding of inflation. He doesn't regard it as rising prices. He regards it as money supply. He He's talked about inflation as a tax, uh, as a tax on savers, as a hidden tax, as a cruel tax. Uh, he understands uh, the loss of value of money, and he he basically says that that's inflation, the erosion of the purchasing power of money, and he can see the monetary policy that exists and that is going to exist. And I think Warren Buffett now has a you know much um, darker outlook on inflation than he did in the past, and I think that he recognizes that while Owning businesses may be a good hedge against moderate inflation or, you know, kind of a more benign inflation, 2% a year or something like that. I think Warren Buffett is now of the opinion that inflation is going to be so much higher than that, that he thinks that this is now a period of time that we're entering where gold is going to be particularly uh, important to own rather than just owning businesses. But I think. When you buy Barrick Gold, you really get the best of both worlds as far as uh, Buffett is concerned because Barrick Gold is a business, uh, and it's in the business of mining and selling gold. 
And so there, you know, Buffett is not simply buying the metal and letting it sit there. He is buying a business that he sees tremendous value in. But he wouldn't see tremendous value in the business if he didn't see potential in the price of gold. In fact, if he thought the price of gold was going to go down, he wouldn't want anything to do with Barrick. Right. Uh, I, I think it's because he has a positive outlook on people using in gold as an inflation hedge. He sees that demand for gold, like demand for any product that a business might produce, he sees demand going up and he looks at the balance sheet of this business and he sees a great business. He sees earnings. He sees dividends. Uh, and, he, and he sees a bright future. Uh, so, you know, I think you actually have to be more bullish on gold when you're buying a gold company than if you're just buying the metal. Because clearly, if the price of gold goes down, there's a lot more downside risk in the miners than there is just in the metal itself. And I think there's, a, you know, a lot more upside potential in the mining stock. So it's kind of like a levered bet on gold. So if you're really bullish on gold, uh, you may focus on, on the miners. But, you know, I, I remember reading, and I mentioned this on my podcast, an article that Warren Buffett wrote uh, many years ago. You can still see it up on the internet uh, about Squanderville and Squander Bucks. And Squanderville was the United States, and Squander Bucks was the U.S. dollar. And Buffett was very worried about the value of the dollar. And because of the deficits that we were running at the time and the money we were printing, which is small by comparison to what's going on today. Uh, and, and so Buffett has expressed many of the same concerns that I've expressed during his career about profligate deficit, deficit spending and, and artificially low interest rates and money printing. Uh, it's just kind of he's put on this public persona um, to really try to be the guy that's optimistic, that's bullish on America, and he's kind of downplayed the need, uh, you know, to hedge against inflation or the, the deficits. But I think at this point, maybe Buffett is surprised, and I don't know why, but uh, by <laughs> the degree, you know, to which, uh, you know, we've now gone, you know, off the deep end when it comes to these things. We've pushed the envelope to the point where Buffett. Uh, now has to acknowledge that it's a problem. And so he's buying. And so the other uh, criticisms or the way people are dismissing this, well, it probably wasn't Warren Buffett. It was probably one of his uh, portfolio managers. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of doubt, given the public statements that Buffett has made about gold, you know, being, you know, why buy gold? And given how, you know, sharply this investment really contrasts with everything else they've done, I mean, obviously anybody knew that, hey, if, if Berkshire Hathaway buys a gold stock, that in and of itself is going to be a big news because it makes a big statement. I really don't think that somebody would make an investment like that without running it by Buffett. I mean, I don't think Buffett would end up being blindsided, like, oh, whoa, I didn't know you guys did that. Oh, why, right. you know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm pretty sure that since it was kind of not a typical, you know, Buffett stock, um, that before they did something that was a little bit out of the ordinary, they would probably give, the, give Buffett a call and say, hey, you know, Warren, we're thinking about buying a gold stock. Uh, what do you think? You know, you, 
you know, or just get some kind of input rather than risking, you know, doing something that might, you know, get the guy to be pissed. Like, what the hell are you guys doing? You know, that would be like one uh, of your employees getting you long the dollar without telling you. <laughs> it just seems like, you know, I mean, it's, it's it, if, if they were doing something, you know, that really was typical Buffett, you know, it was probably OK. But I just I just have a hard time believing that he didn't know about it. And even if he didn't make the decision, if he knew about it and he didn't tell them not to do it, then obviously he agrees with it. Right. I mean, because if it was something he didn't want to do, he would have said, "Ah, oh, no, you know, uh, let's not do that. Even just sending, I don't want to send that kind of signal. I don't want, I don't want to, I don't right. want to, you know, it's like he's all, all his money has been, you know, I'm with the table. I'm, I'm betting the numbers, you know, and it's like, well, let's put something on the don't pass line. Oh no, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. You know, it's like, it's not, it's like anti the crowd, right? I don't want to be, I don't want to be betting, you know, betting on that. Yeah. Um, the video that you posted, I talked about on my own podcast, you know, first off, I said Buffett always says don't bet against America, and it, what what he should have been saying was don't bet against the Fed. That should have been his actual, uh, you know. But it's a nice PR polish to come out and make it seem as though you're doing something patriotic by yep. riding the Fed's wave. I saw the video but, that you posted. Go ahead. Did you want to respond to that? Yeah. Well, I was just saying that you know, buying gold and gold stocks is betting on the Fed. I mean, you're betting that the Fed will keep doing what it's doing. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, if you're if you don't buy gold stocks, then you're betting the Fed is going to change. So you're betting the Fed is going to come to its senses, recognize the mistake that it's made and, and correct them, that the Fed is going to finally do the right thing. Right. So I'm not making that bet. I'm betting that the Fed will continue doubling down on failed policies and never admit that it got anything wrong. I, I don't think the Fed will ever change until everything it's done has completely blown up in its face to the point that there's a currency crisis and then maybe they'll get religion it's kind of like a guy you know you know that maybe you finally get cancer or something and you're about to die and all of a sudden you're you go to church because you're confronted with you know maybe you've been an atheist your whole life but all of a sudden you're about to die and you're like you know now you find religion or something i don't know but i think that that may happen to the Fed because it, as long as they could keep printing money and the, the negative consequences are not as apparent in that they're not showing up, you know, in, at the supermarket, you know, you know, in, in a big way. As long as the inflation is concentrated in asset prices and they can keep on moving the stock market higher or the real estate market higher, or the bond market higher and foreigners are willing to, to stockpile our IOUs and keep supplying American consumers with all sorts of stuff that they didn't produce and can't really afford, well, then there's no reason for the Fed to stop. I mean, why end a party prematurely when you don't have to, right? But eventually, you know, when the, when the cops raid the place, uh, that's when the, the party's going to come to an end. And I, I don't think we're that far away from that point, right? I think that that is, you know, what people are missing is that, you know, this is not a problem for our grandparents. I mean, for our grandkids, right? I keep hearing people say, look, we're leaving this mess for our kids. We're leaving all this debt for our children. Look, I don't think our children are going to deal with this debt. I think it's going to be wiped out before they get a chance to inherit it. Uh, so we're going to deal with the consequences uh, in, in terms of inflation. And I think Buffett can see that. And, you know, when people say, 
but this is only a small investment, right? It's only, you know, five, six hundred million dollars, which, you know, for Buffett is small. I mean, it's not small for a normal person or even, you know, even even a normal hedge fund, if they were to put half a billion dollars into a gold stock, that would be a big position for a hedge fund, you know. Um, but for Berkshire Hathaway, uh, it's not a lot. But my counter to that is that, first of all, every journey begins with the first step. And so simply looking at this Barrick position, how do you know that Buffett is finished buying? Right. How do you know that how do you know that he isn't just starting to build a position and that he's going to build a much bigger position over time? This is just his initial foray into the sector. Uh, you know, who knows what's behind it? Right. Then the, the my other point would be that, well, you know, this disclosure that we're 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 getting is from the end of the third quarter. So how do you know how much more he bought? Right. Since then. Yeah, you don't. And and, and there's and like what there's I like 50, is, 54 days in there now where he could have been buying uh, and would not have had to disclose it yet. Right. And my other thinking was, OK, Buffett knows that his disclosures are going to be made public. Right. There's going to be a point. OK, everyone's going to know that I've been buying Barrick gold uh, at a certain point. And so if I'm Buffett and I know that, you know, people are going to know what I'm doing, um, I'm going to try to buy a lot more before, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Right. So because Buffett knows that if he comes out and says he's buying gold stocks or people see that he's buying them, then more people are going to want to buy them simply because Buffett is buying them. And um, and so if you're a buyer and you're trying to buy a lot of something and you want to get a good price, the last thing you want to do is let people know that you're doing it because now the sellers aren't going to be as interested in selling. They're going to want a better price and you know more people are going to want to compete and, and buy also. So I think it's interesting that we haven't heard a single positive statement out of Warren Buffett about gold or about Barrick. I mean, he's, I mean, he's certainly not shy about sharing his opinions yet. He hasn't shared his opinions on, 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 on Barrick. And so, um, I think it's because he wants to buy more. And I think he probably took advantage of that, uh, last, you know, maybe five weeks between the, the end of Q3, Q2 rather, and the day that the disclosure came public, I think there was about five Date five weeks in there where he was still completely under the radar when it came to buying uh, more shares of Barrick. So my guess is that his position is already quite a bit larger than the position that he held um, at the end of uh, the second quarter. We'll see. And I, and I also think it's possible that he put money into another gold stock. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe he bought Newmont. I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, or, or something else. I mean, obviously, you know, Buffett is kind of limited in the stocks because gold stocks in general, the market caps are very, very small. I mean, with the, with, with the exception of a few of these really big stocks, you know, these the smaller companies, I mean, Buffett really can't get in there because if he tried to buy 
a position large enough to, to basically move the needle in his portfolio, I mean, he'd, he'd be bidding up the price. I mean, the price would run away and he wouldn't be able to get the value. So I think also that, you know, you had a lot of selling initially. So we don't even know where during the quarter Buffett, you know, bought these shares. So we don't really know what, what his average price is. And there's no doubt as to whether or not he understands what the argument is because you posted that video and I talked about it on my podcast, although I wasn't sure where the hell I saw it, but now I'm remembering as you're telling me. You posted that video of Buffett at a Berkshire shareholders meeting, and I'm not sure when it was from, uh, maybe the 2000s or maybe the early 2010s or the 90s, but Buffett is sitting there at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting, and he's saying, inflation is a tax. It brutalizes the lower class and the middle class. And so he understands the argument for inflation, like you just said earlier, very well. Yeah. He just and he hasn't actually, chosen to come out and speak out about it the way that you have. He's instead yeah, and, gone along with it. And he actually said that inflation is something that fewer than one in a million understands. Now, why would he say that? Because if inflation is just rising prices. I mean, everybody thinks they understand inflation because they think it's rising prices. And if Warren Buffett believed that inflation right. was rising prices, then why would he claim that fewer than one in a million understands it? Because it's so simple to understand that. But R Buffett knows that the vast majority of the public doesn't understand. They're confused about inflation. They don't know what it is because they think that it is increasing prices. But Warren Buffett knows, and that little clip is proof because he emphasized it a couple times, that he sees inflation as a tax. Well, taxes come from government. And who imposes the inflation tax? The Federal Reserve. And in fact, he even referenced when talking about inflation that the dollar had lost like 94 or 96 percent of yep. its value during his lifetime. So that is inflation. Inflation is the loss of purchasing power of the dollar, and that loss of purchasing power is a tax because that purchasing power is transferred to the government. The government spends that purchasing power into the economy by extracting it from the people who own the currency. And he said it's a tax on people who, you know, who, you know, you put it confidence in fiat money and then, you know, they they get taxed through inflation. So obviously you look at what's going on right now. Um, Buffett is not a fool. You know, I mean, and I've criticized Buffett before for his hypocrisy on supporting, you know, higher taxes and and Democratic candidates when I know he goes out of his way uh, to limit his own personal taxes. He takes minimal salary for running a Berkshire. He, he, he prefers capital gains, which he knows are taxed at a lower rate or, or, or dividends, which are taxed at a lower rate. Um, and, you know, he talks about wanting an inheritance tax. And, you know, I know that Buffett only has been advocating that because it benefits Berkshire, because Berkshire Hathaway likes to buy businesses that the owners are forced to sell because the heirs can't afford to pay the estate tax. Right. So and I'm sure that he has all kinds of complicated structures to avoid it himself. And of course, he's also giving a lot of his wealth to charity, which means that it avoids the estate tax. Uh, but you know, I, I point out the economic damage the estate tax does in destroying businesses, family-owned businesses, and forcing businesses to sell uh, to larger competitors like Berkshire because they don't have the liquidity 
uh, to pay the the estate tax. Um, but I've never said Buffett wasn't smart or that he was a bad investor or that he was a fool. I mean, clearly he's not. I mean, you don't get that rich in the investment game being a bad investor, you know. And and some of the bets that Buffett made, like you know, when he bought the financials going into uh, 2008, he got into the banks. I mean, at the time, I said, "Look, this is a dumb move because I thought the financials had a lot further to go," and I was right about that. But potentially, Buffett's bet was not that the financials wouldn't go down; it was that the government would bail them out after they did. And exactly. based on the way, and based on the way he structured his investments as convertible preferreds with good dividends, Buffett ended up being right. I mean, and I don't know, maybe Buffett realized that the stocks were going to get a lot cheaper, but he just bought uh, the, the, the securities at a time where they were available to him, knowing, making a bet that the government would bail them out. And, and so he actually bet right in that respect. But I think it's interesting now, he's not buying more financials now. In fact, he is net selling financials. Even though I think he still believes that the government will bail them out and the government won't let them fail, I think at this point he's worried that in bailing out the financials that he the government destroys the dollar. So I think he's finally of the opinion that it doesn't matter if the government bails out the banks because it's going to bail them out with depreciated dollars. And so I don't want to own these financials because that's a bet on the dollar because ultimately you know, it's, it, it's what the dollar is worth. And I think that the fact that he's now moving into gold and again, by buying Barrick Gold, he's buying gold. And in fact, what is one of the biggest assets that Barrick Gold has? The gold that they haven't mined yet. So when and, and this is how I look at my gold stocks is that I own the gold that's in the ground. I own those mines. Right. So, you know, I look at it as gold when I'm buying Barrick Gold because they, they've got all that gold to sell. They own it all. And, and so I think that this is a, a, a major shift uh, in, in Buffett's thinking and, and Buffett's really acknowledgement of, of what the future looks like. And for all the positive spin that he wants to put on things to, you know, to keep a, to keep a, you know, a happy face on this situation, look at what he's doing. Don't necessarily look at what he's saying. Right. Right. And, and, and don't dismiss this as if it's kind of some one off thing. You know, because I even think that if if Buffett only wanted to have a five hundred thousand, a five hundred million dollar position in, in in Barrick Gold, I think they would say, you know what, it's not even worth the bad publicity. Why even do it? Right. It's he, like, what is the point? You know, I mean, if if it's not the beginning of a bigger position that he is planning on building over time, because he has to start somewhere, right? Every journey starts with the first step, so he had to take that step eventually. Do you think that Buffett – I look back to the video that you posted that we just talked about and I hear him kind of speak about inflation matter-of-factly and say, OK, only one in a million people understand it. And then I look at guys like you and I look at Ron Paul and, uh, you know, there's people that when they understand, you know, the expansion of the money supply and inflation as you define it as it's been defined for a very long time – they feel kind of like an ethical obligation to confront that a little bit and to speak out uh, about it. Certainly, I know that that's one of the reasons that motivates me to 
get on the mic and to yell a little bit is because I feel like he might be right that one in a million people really get it and and the rest don't get it. Do you think it says something about Buffett ethically uh, by him not coming out and really, you know, if he was America's patriot the way he positions himself, wouldn't he have been speaking out about it earlier and trying to inform the mom and pop of this nefarious tax that is taking more out of their back pocket than it is handing them in their front pocket? Well, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think, look, I think Buffett likes to be liked. And I think, you know, when you're as wealthy as Buffett, too, you're worried that people are going to resent you for how wealthy you are. And I think that's one of the reasons that some of these rich people publicly want to be Democrats, because the perception is that Democrats care and Republicans don't. So if you're rich, but you're a Democrat, well, then you're, you're, you're seen as being, you're, you're, you're rich, but you're still a nice guy. You're a good guy. You care. Right. (laughs) Whereas if you're a Republic, you're rich and you're Republican, well, figures, you're just greedy bastard who only cares about himself. So, you know, in a way, uh, you know, it takes a lot more courage to say, yeah, I'm rich and I'm a Republican because now you're not re- apologizing for being rich. You know, you're not trying to say, yeah, I'm a rich guy, but I'm still good. I'm still a good person. See, because I, I vote Democrat. Uh, it's like an easy way out. It's kind of a coward's way out because you know uh, that there's so many people that that are Democrats that think that if you're a Republican, you're bad because you're greedy and evil and don't care. Right. Uh, and so it's easy to take that 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 path by pretending you care by, you know, by saying you're a Democrat. Uh, and, and so I think Buffett certainly, you know, has some of that. But if you really look back at a lot of stuff that Buffett has said, you know, Buffett has talked about how there is going to be a day of reckoning that we can't keep running these deficits, that we can't keep printing money. It's just that he's kind of always been of the opinion that you know, that day of reckoning is is still far in the future. And, you know, we still have time to change our fate, right? That we can cut government spending and balance the budget and that it's like 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 the damage is not irreparable, right? That we that we could fix it. But I think now what you know Buffett is really acknowledging is that, you know, we've passed that point. That, you know, we can't fix it anymore. That 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 the, the date with destiny is inevitable. The day of reckoning is coming, you know, because you you look you look at what we've just done in response to COVID, and you think, okay, we had big deficits before, and now they're off the charts, and the government is is the Fed is printing sixty cents out of every dollar that the government is spending, and you think, how are we ever going to come back from this? Because, you know, the deficits went up to about a trillion dollars under under Bush at the end of 2008 because of the OA crisis. And then when Obama inherited those big deficits, they stayed at about a trillion dollars for several years. And then they gradually started to to drift lower uh, in his second term. Although when you look at the real deficits, not the numbers the government reports, but the ones that include everything, we didn't even get that much below a trillion dollars a year. I mean, maybe we got to what, 700 billion, 800 billion, you know, if you if you throw everything back in. Uh, and the, the, the balance sheet that went up to four and a half trillion uh, under Obama, after like three years or four of, of, of shrinking this balance sheet or whatever, um, we barely got under under three trillion. So, 
you know, the the, redu- the amount of reduction in the balance sheet that the Fed was able to do was minimal compared to the size of the balance sheet. And in the normalization process on interest rates, we didn't really get much above 2% before the wheels started coming off the bus in the fourth quarter of 2018. So Buffett can see that. We tried to normalize rates and we failed. We tried to shrink the balance sheet and we failed. And we never had any meaningful reduction in the elevated rate of deficits that we had. So now we're doing it all over again. Now the balance sheet is over $7 trillion. Who knows when the hell it's going to stop growing. Um, the budget deficits are now in the neighborhood of, what, 3 to $4 trillion. And what Buffett knows is whenever you do this, there's no going back. The Fed can't dial it back. The government can't dial it back. Once you get the public use to a certain level of government spending, whatever the emergency is that necessitates – or not necessitates, but maybe results in that big increase in government spending, the government is incapable of dialing it back down. It's it, it, They can't do it. I mean, once you get a government program, it doesn't go away, you know, because then if you try to get rid of it, well, you're, you're a terrible person who right. wants to cut something. <laughs> so, you know, we're at a point now where we've just, you know, moved the bar so much that Buffett has got to think, okay, forget about it. I mean, we're never going to get the deficit under control. We're never going to get the money printing under control. And so inflation is is going to be out of control. And and that's just that. And, and so what is he going to do about it? Is he going to do nothing about it? I mean, he already owns a lot of businesses, which he believes are good inflation hedges. Uh, but now he needs to have better inflation hedges. He needs to be in the gold mining business. <laughs> Not just, you know, in uh, razor blades or Coca-Cola or, you know, whatever that is. And, and, and I think the fact that what is he lightening up on? I mean, people make a big deal out of the fact that he bought more Bank of America. All right. But he sold Wells Fargo or Goldman Sachs or whatever his positions JP were. JP Morgan, he, yeah. He sold a lot more financials than he bought. And, 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 and so maybe he just didn't want to have – you know, no exposure. So he just said, look, I'm going to have a lot less exposure to financials. So I'm going to sell off these, and, but I'm going to buy a little bit more of, uh, of, of Bank of America, you know, so, but, but, but to me, you, you just have to look at overall and that move, right, from financials into gold, that alone tells you what he's thinking of because the, the banks represent the ultimate confidence in the fiat monetary system. Um, and and gold is the opposite of that. Barrett gold. I mean, that is uh, a trade off that I made and I talked to, about it on my podcast. It's like one of the things that I did in one of my funds and one of the reasons that I so underperformed uh, for many, many years and why now I'm way outperforming is because I made that allocation bet that very few people would be willing to make because nobody wants to go far from the benchmark because right. people are afraid that if they do that, they could end up underperforming and look like a fool. And I did underperform that I didn't care if people thought I was a fool uh, because there's a method to my madness. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I think I know what I'm doing. But my strategic allocation was to not have financials, even though the indexes had a lot of financials, and to have gold stocks instead of financials, even though the indexes had no gold stocks. So that was a big difference. Now, a lot of the rest of my portfolio, I had a lot of the other sectors that everybody else had. And, you know, and so that wasn't where, where the real difference was. The major difference between what I was doing 
in international investing was avoiding the banks, which everybody else was loaded up on, and having positions in gold stocks, which nobody else had at all. And so obviously when the financials were going up and the gold stocks were going down, I was getting killed. I was in last place because I didn't have what was going up that everybody else had, and I had what was going down, which nobody had. But now it's the reverse. I don't own what's going down, and I own what's going up, you know, or one of the things that's going up that a lot of other people don't own. Now, it's not just gold stocks that are going up, right? You have tech stocks. There are a lot of stocks that are going up. In fact, more than gold stocks. I mean, you, you know, there are a number of these stocks. But I think those stocks are in bubbles, and I think a lot of money is flowing into them uh, because people think they don't have an alternative. I mean, they don't even want to consider gold stocks because uh, uh, they're too far outside the mainstream. And and so they're 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 everybody is kind of uh, uh, you know moving into the this uh, smaller and smaller boat, right? Everybody is getting off this big ship into this little teeny boat that's still a respectable. Uh, part of the portfolio, right? A lot of these uh, momentum tech stocks and a lot of these stocks too benefit from COVID, you know, because they're, 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 they can do the work online and they're, right. you know, they're not, you know, I mean, I, I went over that on my last podcast that, you know, because you have a lot of these people like on CNBC talking about, hey, you know, the stock market's doing great. So that must mean the economy is not as bad as we think. And, you know, the weakness in the economy is actually the best thing the stock market has going for it. The worse the economy gets, the higher stock prices go because the weak economy means we get more money printing, which stimulates the stock market, not the economy. But the, the, the more the government locks us down, the worse COVID gets, the better it is for, for Wall Street because it's Main Street that is suffering. You know, it's the the publicly traded companies, especially the ones that are, you know, the Amazons or the Netflix or the Pelotons or, you know, anything or Facebook or whatever is seen as benefiting from people staying at home. Right. Th those are all publicly traded companies that right. benefit. All right. You know, these aren't the mom and pop uh, uh, companies that are out there that are clearly suffering. So the worse the economy is, the better it is uh, for Wall Street. But I think investors, since they realize that um, the economy is affecting corporate earnings, they kind of want to buy the stocks where no one even gives a damn about earnings. So they, they want to concentrate on these momentum stocks where earnings are taking a back seat and where the PEs can go up faster than the earnings are falling. Right. So it, it, the, 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 these sectors are kind of insulated uh, from the, the effects. And, they, and these are the stocks that dominate the indexes. So you, know, you look at you look at the Dow Jones. I pointed this out on my podcast. Apple and uh, Microsoft. I mean, it's the Dow Jones is not a market cap weighted index. It's a price weighted. But if you look at those thirty companies, Am Apple and Microsoft are more than forty percent of the market cap of the entire Dow Jones. I mean, so that kind of tells you where we are, right? All these industrial companies, you know, are worth peanuts compared to a couple of tech companies. Well, I want to I want to ask you I want to go down that road real quick because it, it's that's my next question. But I don't want to get away from one question I had real quick about gold miners that I want to just circle back to, which is can you just explain to my listeners? You know, a lot of times you say, oh, he's buying a miner. So that means he wants to buy gold with leverage. Can you just explain how operating leverage works for a gold miner and why buying a gold miner is essentially buying gold with leverage? You're not just tied 
directly to gold's price, but you start to get some hockey stick style leverage as gold prices increase. Can you just explain that real quick, the difference between buying miners and just physical? Yeah, well, first of all, buying physical gold, right? As far as I'm concerned, having gold in your hand is like having cash under your mattress, right? Look, gold is money, right? Even though it's not circulating as money, we're not using it as a medium of exchange, central banks are holding onto it, right? It's the only other real asset, although now you have central banks buying stocks. Uh, but, you know, as far as, uh, you know, real reserves, it's either fiat currencies or, or, or it's gold. But gold is liquidity. Gold represents a real store of value uh, that is a you know better than uh, you know fiat currencies, and and so I look at gold the way a lot of other people would look at cash, right? And you know and, and certainly yes, there's some uh, volatility, but again, if you're in America and you decide to own Swiss francs or to own Australian dollars, right? You're going to see some volatility there, even though those are obviously currencies, right? You can own those. They're going to fluctuate. So uh, you can own gold as an alternative. So, and, and it, again, like Buffett is right. Gold doesn't have a yield. Neither does cash. I mean, if you put cash in under your mattress, there's no yield there. The only way you get a yield on cash is you have to loan it to somebody. Uh, and you have to take counterparty risk that they, they may default. They may not pay you back. So uh, if you don't want to take risk with your cash, if you don't want to loan it out, then you get no interest. The same thing with gold. I mean, I can loan my gold to somebody and they can pay me interest, but then I run the risk that I don't get my gold back. So, you know, you, you so if you want to just hold on to something that's currency or money and take no risk of loss, then you can either hold gold or you you can hold you know one of these fiat currencies. But you know they're they're printing a lot of dollars. They're not mining that much gold. You know so what do you think is going to do better? It's clear. And in fact, if you if you told Buffett, you know, hey, you're gonna you're gonna you have to keep some cash in a in a vault for the next five years, right? And you can pick any fiat currency or gold to lock in that vault. He would pick gold hands down. There's no way he wouldn't pick gold. Uh, you know, and if those if that was what he had to do with it. Right. But so gold is just a store of value. You're not you're not getting you're not gaining any wealth. You're not generating any wealth. You're just preventing a government from stealing your purchasing power through inflation. Right. But a gold mining company is a business. Right. You're, you're operating a business. Right. And obviously, whenever you operate a business, all sorts of things can go wrong. And believe me, a lot of things, a lot of things have gone wrong. Right. In the gold mining business over the last decade. I mean, these guys have really screwed up and made a lot of bad decisions. And there's been a lot of problems in the sector. But one of the problems has been that the price of gold, even though it's gone up, hasn't been able to go up as much as the cost of mining it. I mean, mining costs have really gone up uh, over the years and, and gold prices haven't even really outpaced it. So it's been a very difficult industry. Uh, the gold mining industry, and especially since you know we had a big run up in the price of gold up to uh, 1900 in 2011, and then at that point there were some acquisitions made. Uh, you know, people started to assume that the price of gold would keep going up, and in fact, a lot of these companies were were hedged. If you go back to 2001, 2002, 2003, which was the end of a 20-year bear market in gold where everybody thought that the only place gold can go was down, a lot of these gold companies were hedged. And so when the gold price started to move up and all these guys had sold gold forward at $300, $400 an ounce, 
a lot of these companies were people, you know, their shareholders were rightfully mad at them for not having been smart enough to take off those hedges for all those years that gold was, you know, under 300 or whatever. And so by the time they started lifting their hedges, the gold price was much higher. <laughs> so it, look, it was like really a, a bad situation for a lot of these gold stocks. But I think at this point, the industry is really in good shape uh, going forward to benefit from a rising in gold price. And, and the way they benefit, obviously, is let's say your cost of mining gold is um, $1,500 an ounce to, to mine gold in a particular mine. Well, if gold is $1,300 an ounce, that gold has no value at all, right? I mean, you might as well not even own it because what good is something uh, if it if you lose $200 for every ounce that you take out of the ground? I mean, that, that, that has no value. So that gold um, is not going to contribute any earnings, and, and therefore the value of those reserves are not really going to be factored into the present value of the stock. But now, let's say the price of gold goes up to $1,700 an ounce instead of $1,500. Now you can make $200 an ounce. So now something that had no value all of a sudden has value. And now that income can be factored in. But then what happens if the price of gold goes from $1,700 to $1,900, right? Well, what, what is the percentage increase there? That is, uh, let's see, two divided by 17, two divided by 17. Almost 10%. It's like 11, 12%, right? Yeah, but now your earnings go from $200 an ounce to $400 an ounce. So the earnings of that mine, if the price, if the cost of mining stayed the same, and now you get a 10% increase in the price of gold, you get a 100% increase in the profitability of that mine. So... What happens is as the price of gold goes up, it has a disproportionate effect on the income that the company can generate from mining that gold, right? Now, the inverse is true as the price of gold goes down, right? If the price of gold goes down from 1900 to $1,700, you have a 50% drop in your earnings, right? Because now you are, you are getting $400 an ounce and now you're only getting 200 so it, the, it, the, the moves are magnified. The effects are magnified. But also the, um, the, the view or the, 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 the opinion of the future price of gold is also very important in determining what investors would be willing to pay for a gold company. So let's say you have a situation where the price of gold moves up temporarily. And investors believe that this is just a temporary situation. Like, oh, gold is only going up because of COVID, right? It's just an overreaction to this fear, or it's going up because of some geopolitical event that's scaring people, right? So to the extent that people think that the rise of gold is a temporary fluke that is not likely to sustain itself over time, they're not going to bid up the price of a gold stock because the gold stock is supposed to reflect the future earnings of the company, right. how much they're going to get for the gold they mine in five years, in 10 years. So if you don't have a strong long-term outlook on what gold prices are going to do, you're not going to buy a gold mining company. And so that's why a lot of times you'll see these gold stocks have been underperforming because even though the price of gold has been going up, investors just don't believe the rally. 
you know, and, and, and they don't understand why it's coming. It's not because of geopolitical events. It's because of inflation. It's because of deficits and money printing. But once you understand that the deficits are only going to get bigger and even more money is going to get printed and that inflation is going to run out of control because there's nothing that the Federal Reserve can do to rein it in because it's impossible at this point to do it. You know, we had to let interest rates go up to 20 percent in 1980 to rein it in back then. And obviously, we couldn't afford to do a fraction of that. I mean, we saw what happened in 2018 when rates got above 2%. And, you know, we had the worst, you know, stock market collapse since the Great Depression. And then the Fed had to quickly uh, reverse course. So there is no way that we can ever rein in a runaway inflation, uh, that we're going to have a high inflation economy and all the problems uh, that that entails. And so what's going to happen to these gold stocks is not only are their current earnings going to rise dramatically, but investors are now going to reassess their long-term uh, outlook for the future earnings of these companies. And they are going to extrapolate much higher future earnings as they start to value their gold reserves at much higher prices into the future. And now they're going to put much higher multiples on these stock prices to reflect that growth. So I think that the gold stocks are just going to go ballistic. I mean, you can see what's happening in other stocks. I mean, you know, look at what's happening with Tesla, you know, and, you know, it once stocks start to go up, they can start to have a life of its own. And the gold stocks, believe me, are going to have much, much better underlying fundamentals uh, than does Tesla. You know, and there's going to be a lot of shorts in there, too, that are going to be in trouble. People who don't get it, uh, who are shorting these stocks. Uh, and I think where, you know, your listeners, where my clients have an edge over Warren Buffett is the size of the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. See, when you're talking about the current state of the mining sector, it's a very, very small sector. There's not a lot of market cap there. And and so the, the, the advantage is being small. The advantage is to be able to get into a lot of these mining companies to not not just be limited to the Barrick Golds and a few other you know big companies which are not even big comparison to the type of companies that you would find in you know the tech sector or the financials or the, you know the, the insurance or healthcare. I mean there are these mega companies. I mean Barrick Golds market cap is very small. You know, compared to the stocks that 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 are being bought, but there are a lot of stocks that are much smaller, a lot of mid-tier uh, mining companies, to say nothing of the junior mining sector, the exploration sector. I mean, Buffett can't even look at these stocks because the price would go up so much just if they thought he was sniffing around, even if he didn't buy any. Um, so he, you know, he's kind of limited in his in his opportunities, but. Right now, we're not. I mean, my like my gold fund, for example, uh, you know, which is now not quite three hundred million dollars in AUM, is still very, very small. I mean, that's smaller than uh, Buffett's entire you know position in Barrick alone. You know, my entire gold fund, and I, you know, I've got more money invested in gold stocks because we have a lot of money that's not in my gold fund. We manage a lot of money for uh, investors where we buy the gold stocks directly. Right? We don't just and I own gold stocks in my value fund. You know, I own I, I own Barrick Gold in my value fund. I own Barrick Gold in my dividend pairs fund. So I I own that stock in my funds that aren't even aren't gold funds. 
So, you know, I have, so if you add up all the gold stocks I have in individual accounts and then in other funds, the gold fund, you know, it's, it's more than that, but it's still, you know, the amount of money that I am managing is a lot smaller than the amount of money that Berkshire Hathaway is managing. So, so I've, I've got, I've got a whole bunch of opportunities because I think what, yeah, could Barrick gold go up tenfold? Yes, I think he can, but I think there are stocks that can go up 50 fold, a hundredfold, right? That, you know, if Barrett goes up tenfold, and I want to own those stocks too, Buffett's going to miss out on those stocks. What are you those junior miners? You think? Yeah, yeah, the smaller ones. And 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 you know, the key though there too is to have a portfolio manager. Like I've got this guy Adrian Day who I hired, but that actually knows uh, this industry because there's not that many people that know it. I mean, it's been a, a brutal bear market. The best and the brightest on Wall Street are not, you know, in the mining sector. You know, the smartest people didn't become geologists. I mean, that wasn't where the money went. You know? uh, but if you got a guy that really knows this and has been doing it for 40 years and knows the players and the mines and the projects and the management teams and all this, you know, we'll make fewer mistakes. I mean, that's going to be the key because no one's going to bat a thousand in junior mining. Right. Um, but the key is if we can limit our mistakes and, ha and, and get more of the home runs. Right. I mean, Babe Roof. Got a lot of strikeouts, but he made up for that with getting enough home runs, right? If you just get a bunch of strikeouts without the home runs, then you're in trouble. And and so I think, you know, uh, my guy is the Babe Ruth of uh, um, um, managers when it comes to the gold sector. And he's not competing with a lot of other, you know, heavy hitters. I mean, there's, you know, eventually I think more smart people will come in. They won't have his level of experience. And eventually, look, a lot of these stocks that we're buying that have very small market caps are going to have much bigger market caps <laughs> because the prices of the stocks are going to get a lot higher. And then it'll make it easier for the larger money to come in because now the stocks will be a lot more uh, valuable. You know, but I want to get in before that happens, you know, before the big money uh, can get into these stocks while they're still small enough that the big money, you know, doesn't even consider them. They're off. They're off their radar. But it makes sense that the first stocks that they would be buying are the biggest ones. So they're going to buy a barrack or they're going right. to buy a new one. Right. That because that's where the market cap is. So you know, where they can at least <clears throat> come in. So, Peter, let's real quick. Let's talk about what you were talking about a couple of minutes ago, which is the the path forward that's kind of going to make this happen. I wanted to, you know, circle back on the minor question because you had talked about it earlier. I jotted down a note. But uh, on what you were saying uh, uh, about 10, 15 minutes ago plays into what one of my next questions was for you, which is, listen, Joe Biden has come out here over the last couple of days and said, if scientists recommend it, I will shut down the entire country again. <laughs> and so when when we talk about, you know, putting aside all of the new data that we have about the virus and putting aside whether or not, you know, it's practical, which, of course, it isn't. But put that aside and talk about what the path forward. What do you think the path forward would look like if we were to shut down the entire country again versus if we're going to continue going down the route we're on now, it seems to me both are airplanes heading towards the side of the mountain. One probably gets there a lot quicker. What do you think would happen? What would be the effect on the economy, on the price of gold, on, on everything, if we were to shut down the entire country again? Well, look, I mean, we're either way, we're doing the wrong thing, right? But obviously, a complete shutdown would just 
make the situation even worse than it already is. But the biggest problem with it is that we are not making decisions properly because we are not evaluating the costs and the benefits of everything that we're doing. That is that that is the problem uh, because everybody believes that there is no adverse consequence to the economy from shutting down, right? All they look at is the potential benefit. And again, it's a potential benefit. I mean, because you could find plenty of uh, scientists or doctors that will disagree, right? But even if you assume that the best thing we can do to limit the damage done by COVID-19 is to completely shut down the economy, right? Let's say that's the case. But, and, and let's forget about, you know, uh, all of um, the the other uh, consequences, you know, because, you know, you're shutting down, you know, health-wise, because, you know, a lot of people, you know, when you shut down the economy, you're shutting down the doctors, too. People are going out, I mean, people can be dying of things that they might have gotten cured from if they if, if they were able to get medical attention, but there's they're, they're not because they're, you know, staying home. But, for, but if you just assume that, yes, we will save lives, right? if we shut down the economy completely. Look, that's look, we would save lives if we had a 25 mile an hour speed limit on the highway, right? I mean, right, if nobody can drive faster than 25 miles an hour, I'm sure that on balance we'd save lives, wouldn't we? we wouldn't we have less traffic accidents? So, so why don't we just do it, right? Yeah, well, it's not right? practical. Well, we've made a decision. We've made a decision that the benefit that we gain from driving 65 is worth the extra deaths that we have that it's that it's that it's 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 an acceptable level of additional deaths because if we had to drive that slow it would so screw things up um i mean imagine if trucks had to drive at 25 miles an hour how much more it would cost to ship stuff i mean i mean so you you make a decision here is the problem with all of the covid stuff the decisions that should be made is, okay, we shut down the economy, but now what does that do? Right? Well, now all these people don't have incomes. Well, they can't pay their rents. They can't pay their mortgage. They can't pay for their cars or their credit cards. So we're going to have all these defaults. Businesses aren't going to be able to survive. I mean, so if we shut down the economy, we better be willing to deal with the mess that that creates. People right. are going to lose a lot of wealth. Uh, it's going to be really, really bad, right? So, but what we're saying is, oh no, it's not going to be really bad because we'll just give everybody the money right. that they're no longer earning, right? So, hey, we can all stay at home. We're just going to replace your income with a check from the government, and, and in fact, we'll even make it better. We're going to give you a bigger check from the government. You can stay home from your $400 a week job, and we're going to give you $700 a week. Oh, fantastic. So now it's actually not only is there not a cost to shutting down the economy, there's actually a benefit to the cost. It's like, hey, I don't have to work, and I get more money than when I was working. So th this, this whole idea that – Whatever we do is okay because whatever income is lost, we'll just get it from the government. And any businesses who can't survive, well, they'll just get that money from the government that we can all just stay at home and not produce, not provide goods and services, 
but nobody has to lose anything because we get all that money for free from the government. That is the problem because as long as people believe that, well, then, yeah, you know, we why, why should we why should we, uh, you know, work? I mean, you got all these teachers. Oh, I don't want to go to work. Just pay me not to work. Well, what if the choice was, OK, if you don't want to risk getting covid, then you don't have to go to work, but you're out of work and you don't get any money. Then all of a sudden the teachers might say, well, you know, it's really not that risky. I guess I'll take a shot. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, <laughs> but, but when you give them the option, hey, you can just use this as an excuse to stay home and not have to wake up in the morning and drive to, to work. Right. And you could just get all this money. I mean, and this is a situation that we've set up. So, yeah, it's really easy because nobody wants to talk about the negative consequences, not even the Republicans. You know, the Republicans are not saying, oh, you know, there's a there's there's a downside to all this money printing. I mean, that is the problem. You have, you know, this new uh, stimulus plan. The Democrats say we want three trillion dollars of money printing. And the Demo Republicans say, no, 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 that's too much. We want one trillion of money printing. Well, if one trillion of money printing is good, why isn't three trillion better? Right. Right. I mean, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is one trillion is bad and three trillion is worse. But the Republicans aren't saying that they're not saying we're, we're in favor of doing something bad just because we want to do something. They're pretending that it's good. See, if the Republicans said we don't want any money printing because it's bad, then they'd have a better argument against the three trillion. But the minute you concede the argument to the Democrats by saying that you believe in money printing and the government should be printing money and handing it out to people, now you're just arguing over how much they should hand out. And then you lose that argument if you're if you're being stingy. Hell, you know, why not why not five trillion? I mean, what you know, what's why why limit it to three? If three trillion is good, five trillion is even better. Do you, you think know? it's do you think it's willful ignorance on the part of politicians? Um, certainly, I think that the lack of education when it, and the lack of understanding of just basic economics is ex, it's really what makes the whole situation extraordinarily dangerous because you don't have anybody in Congress. You don't have a Ron Paul now that's going to stand up and speak out about this. You don't have anybody that understands it and sees it through the Austrian lens, through the sound money lens, but... Do you think with politicians it is a lack of education on basic economics or do you think it's kind of a willful ignorance that they know how bad it can be, but as long as they can turn around and point to the Fed and say, these guys say it's okay, this you know the way that we're running monetary policy, then it's fine. So we should just use it and abuse it as much as possible to keep ourselves in office. Yeah, well, and that's why the people that get appointed to the Fed are the ones that believe in this nonsense. Right. I mean, because that's why they're there. Right. If they were actual sound money people who, <laughs> you know, uh, a, a who believed in limited government, who weren't Keynesians, then they wouldn't be up there. I mean, that's why, you know, a Judy Shelton, you know, was such a, a crazy appointment. And of course, you know, she hasn't even been confirmed. So who knows if she's actually going to make it. Um, but that's why, you know, and, and of course, in order to get confirmed, she has to basically publicly repudiate everything she claims she once believed in. Right. 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 Was it you <laughs> but, that said, was it you that put out the tweet that said, Neil Kashkari has such a terrible understanding of economics that it might put him in line to be the next Fed chair? <laughs> I, think, I think I think he's the favorite as far as I'm concerned, because if you I mean, look, you have to he's he's the he's the guy that believes in the most money printing. 
And obviously, we're going to need the most money printing. The deficits are going to be bigger than ever. So I think that um, he is the favorite, as far as I'm concerned, for Biden. Uh, I mean, he's not going to he's not going to reappoint Powell. I mean, he's Trump's guy, and even Trump was criticizing Powell. Uh, so I don't see any real reason for him to just keep Powell. You know. Yeah, and uh, when, it's it's interesting when, to watch Kashkari too, kind of mouthing off on Twitter, also about it. I mean, when you think about the Fed being objective, and you think about being clinical and being calculated and measured, and doing what's right for the economy, and you know, trying to be this objective body, or heading up this objective body, or the guy that's prospectively going to do that, you don't think of a guy sitting on Twitter taking shots at gold bugs, right? Yeah, and, and also, too, like the only thing anybody would ever criticize the Fed for, like if anyone's going to criticize Fowl, Powell, it's going to be because he raised rates too much, right? Oh, he was too aggressive, you know, and but I mean, they never criticized them because they, 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 they lowered him too much or left him too low too long. Right. I mean, no, no, no. I mean, because the only thing the Fed does right is raising rates. The, the problem is it doesn't raise them enough. It, it doesn't raise them fast enough. It doesn't or, or more importantly, it's not we don't want the Fed raising rates or cutting rates. We want the market determining rates. The problem is the Fed interferes, you know, and that's why, you know, you have all these people now that are trying to claim there's no inflation. And as their proof, they point to the bond market and they say, hey, if there was really all this inflation, would 30 year treasuries really be one point four percent if there was all this inflation? And I said, well, the problem is the inflation is being used to buy those bonds. It's inflation that is manipulating the bond market because the government is printing all this money and then using the money to buy up these bonds. And it's suppressing uh, uh, the yield. It's artificially boosting the price. So you can't claim that there's no inflation because the bond market isn't sniffing it out when the bond market can't sniff anything out because right. the government you know, has taken control of it. So it's really the gold market. So that's where you, you, you have a better indication. And that's where – what is Buffett doing, right? By buying gold, Buffett is saying, I don't believe the bond market. I don't believe that there's no inflation. I'm buying gold. I believe the gold market. You know, that's where – and it's not like the gold market has no manipulation either. So who knows, you know, but it's harder to manipulate that than the bond market. And because, you know, the government is buying bonds. So, it, you know, it, I mean it could buy as much as it wants. And, and, and keep rates low. But what the government is doing is sacrificing the dollar to prop up the bond market. But eventually, investors are going to figure out that so goes the dollar, so goes the bond market. Because it doesn't matter if the Fed can keep bond prices high. If the dollar is tanking, bonds are tanking, regardless of their price. Because the price is dollars. Bonds are IOU dollars. So the bond the treasury market is is only as good as the dollar and in fact it's 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 worse than the dollar because a 30 year bond is not a dollar today it's a dollar that you're going to get in 30 years right so so once people start to realize how much inflation is can you imagine how little somebody's going to pay for the right to get a dollar 30 years from now no i want my dollar right now so i can spend it before it loses any more value if i have to wait 30 years to get that dollar, it won't have any value left by the time I get it. So, I mean, the losses in the bond market are going to be horrific. The other thing I wanted to bring up, you were one of the first people to call out, I mean, in addition to the 
problem with printing the money and the idea of stimulus as it exists. You then layer on top of that the fact that the U.S. government is an exceptionally poor capital allocator and that they don't really have the resources to direct where this capital is going, where this newly printed money is going. And I wanted to just share a story with you because you were one of the first people that I remember when they announced the PPP loan program came out and said, listen, this is not a, not only a huge moral hazard, but it's going to lead to endless fraud and abuse and corruption. And I remember you did this whole podcast where you went through the example of a restaurant owner and hiring his whole family and uh, all these different ways to. But I was speaking to somebody last week and I tweeted this out last night in uh, Frankfurt, Philadelphia, which is Northeast Philly. Uh, Nice woman who told me, hey, you know, I work two jobs. She's on the books, Peter, at two jobs on the books. She works at one uh, she's a manager of a fast food restaurant, and then she is a uh, supervising cook at a casual dining restaurant. And she was telling me her schedule, and we were talking about, you know, what a crazy work week she has. And she just told me, you know, I've collected $20,000 worth of unemployment while I've been working two on-the-books jobs. And I was astonished to hear that. I said, well, how do they allow you to collect unemployment if you're still on the books and you still have jobs? And she said, well, you know, there's a loophole. There's a certain type of unemployment that you can apply for where, uh, you know, where we could still get the money. And everybody in my neighborhood is doing it. Everybody knows about the loophole. Um, You know, I'm saving the money because if they ever come back to me, I can say, all right, well, here it is, you know, and hand it back to them. But She didn't think that was going to happen. She was saying, you know, three, four years down the road, everybody will kind of forget about this. And I almost agree with her. I I think that she's right. I think it could, you know, and it just goes to show how little oversight the government has in this immense amount of money that they have printed and created out of thin air. You were one of the first people to bring that up. So I wanted to kind of get your reaction to that story. I mean, it's impossible. I mean, think about all the welfare fraud and, you know, workman's comp and unemployment. Look, I just had somebody file unemployment claim and they claim that they work for me. I never even heard of the guy. I mean, I mean, I mean, so I mean, I mean, it's just it it was just made up and it's like, okay, but um, I don't know how they chose me. But I mean, no one's heard of the person or, you know, and, and but there is already a lot of fraud in the normal welfare system, unemployment system. Well, now when you open it up to tens of millions or 100 million more people, I mean, it's just impossible to ferret it out. I mean, I said this from day one about the PPP. I said, this is going to be the biggest scam ever, the biggest boondoggle, because nobody is, uh, you know, is personally guaranteeing these loans. Nobody is vetting them. Nobody is checking them out. You're reading stories now of people that didn't even have businesses, that totally made it up. Right. And then they took the money and they left the country because they just got it. You know, but there's so many businesses. Look at that list of all those businesses, big businesses, asset management companies, hedge funds that didn't have any reduction in their revenue because of COVID, that actually made more money because of COVID. Like me, my revenue went up. I could have qualified for all sorts of PPP loans if I wanted to take them, you know, uh, but and, and most people did take them, you know, uh, but and the unemployment, I mean, it's so asinine especially for the Democrats to be so disingenuous as to say that nobody is going to deliberately take unemployment benefits 
instead of working. When people do that all the time, right. when there aren't even with, even without the additional benefits, there are people who are willing to take the unemployment benefit, even though it only replaces maybe a third of what they were earning, they're still willing to to max out their unemployment benefits before they go back to work Be, because they want to take advantage of the leisure. They want to take advantage of the vacation and the time off from work. Um, and that's when they're getting paid less. But if you give people the opportunity to make more money when than when they were working and not working, everybody is going to try to take advantage of that. I mean, you are a sucker if you don't take advantage of that. And in fact, if you're working and your neighbor is staying at home and you're making less than he is, I mean, you know how foolish you feel, you know, going to work, waking up early, you know, driving to the office or whatever your business and doing, especially a lot of this, uh, you know, manual labor or, bare, you know, that's not really, you know, enjoyable to do. And maybe, you know, uh, so th 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 we've set up this perverse incentive system. And now, you know, nobody wants to take that away. Nobody wants to be the politician right. to say that the ride on the gravy train is over. Um, and I know a lot of people and I've talked to the people that are deliberately not working. I know the people that are just staying at home. They don't want to go back to work. Why should they? Especially when, hey, there is a chance I could get COVID if I go back to work, right? Maybe it's a small chance and maybe, I mean, I'm not even going to die from it, but hey, why should I even take that small chance when I can make more money staying at home and taking no chance, you know, or whatever they're doing. Yeah, it gives, them an, it gives them an out. And also it gave a lot of terribly performing companies an out over the last two quarters because as I read the financials of all of these dog shit companies that can't turn a profit and have no hope and no prospects and rely on stock dilution to stay afloat. All of them, Peter, have used COVID, have taken the opportunity to say, well, the business was negatively affected by COVID and who knows if, you know, who knows when it'll come back, right? You're yeah, offering is, people up a scapegoat. It's the excuse that keeps on giving everybody. And look, even Trump, you know, you make the excuse for the economy. Hey, the economy was great, but for COVID, yeah, you know, if it wasn't COVID, it would have been something else. But now it's like, hey, don't blame me. It's not my fault that this pandemic happened. So it gives everybody an excuse. It's an exogenous event that's nobody's fault, right? Hey, nobody, it's nobody's fault this. And now because it's nobody's fault, that's what these politicians keep saying. We need to bail out the workers because it's not their fault that they can't go to work, right? Well, it's not. Well, is it not their fault that they have no savings that they have all this debt? Right. Is that whose fault is that? I mean, you could argue that that's you know, partially the Fed's fault, too, for uh, enticing people in, in, into into all this debt. Uh, but just because, you know, it's not your fault doesn't mean that you're not going to have to deal with the consequences. There are a lot of things that happen in life that aren't your fault and you have to deal with it. You know, the government can't make the problems go away just because there's a problem. And, and people are ignoring the bigger problem that we create by trying to prevent, pretend that we can make these problems go away through the magic of money printing. You know, we're going to have to find the downside of money printing, right? There, we're going to get hit with the negative consequences because as I've been saying, it all it isn't free. We're not getting all this government for free. Right. Somebody's got to pay for it. Right. right. And it, who is it? And it's not just the rich people who are going to get tax increases next year because those tax increases aren't going to come close to covering the cost of the bill. So it's going to be the middle class and the poor who are going to pay the cost and it's going to be in lost purchasing power. It's going to be 
a big increase in standard living. So it's not going to be that you can just we don't have to go to work anymore and we can just stay at home and the government's going to send us money because the money they send us isn't going to buy very much. That's going to be the problem. Right. We can sit home all we want and do nothing. And the government can print all the money it wants and send it to us. But it can't print purchasing power. It can't print the products, the goods and services that nobody is producing because we're all staying home. Yeah. Let's talk about taxation real quick for a second, because I was on uh, George Gammon's program a couple of weeks ago and brought up the example of a friend of mine in Philadelphia that runs a restaurant. And she is just constantly uh, complaining about being bludgeoned with new taxes and different taxes that uh, Democrats continue to lop onto business owners in Philadelphia. And we've seen similar situations in places like California and also now New York is again talking about raising taxes for uh, trading in New York. They want to put a new tax on all trades that consummate in New York City. Uh, or consummate in the state of New York, I think like a five cent tax per, you know, five or ten dollar share or whatever, something relatively meaningful. And I want to just ask you, why why is it difficult for the left to understand that they're to not understand that they're just driving people out of their states, out of their municipalities, and eventually out of the country? I mean, you look, you moved to you moved to Puerto Rico, you're still in the country technically. But you moved your business to Puerto Rico. My friend Sang Lucci did the same thing. Uh, this guy Anton Wallman, who I followed, just moved to Puerto Rico. It's uh, what's so difficult to understand about the fact that when you tax the shit out of people, they're not going to want to stick around for it. Yeah, look, I mean, a lot of uh, the Democrats are figuring this out. I mean, that's why you'll see guys like uh, Cuomo out of New York specifically saying, look, we can't raise taxes here in New York because people will leave. He wants the federal government to raise taxes on everybody and then give the money to the states, right? That's what a lot of these liberal uh, governors want is they want higher taxes on the federal level and then revenue sharing with the states because people know, hey, if I just raise taxes in New York, well, then the guy's just going to move to Florida. But if the federal government raises taxes, then they can't move to Florida. They're going to have to pay the tax no matter where they are, and so maybe they'll stay in New York. So that's why you're seeing this, because there is been a pretty big migration. People are trying to do what they can to stay afloat, right? And you know, if they can reduce their taxes by moving from one state to another, especially given the changes that were made uh, in the tax code in, in 2017, where you can no longer deduct your state taxes from your federal taxes, that effectively increased the state tax rates considerably. I mean, one of the reasons that the states were able to tax as high as they were is because people knew that, well, I could deduct it, and so I'm not really paying the full cost of of the tax. But both the reduction of the federal tax level and then the elimination of that deductibility uh, really increased the, uh, the cost of state taxes and therefore increased the benefit that you have by moving from a high tax state to a lower tax or a no tax state. So uh, I think they're seeing this. And as much as they want to deny it, uh, they're, they're, they're seeing the numbers. Now, some of the states rely on the fact that, well, there are so many other amenities like California, like the weather. And, you know, there's something about the California lifestyle. And I lived in California and, you know, there are people that just want to live there and and they've been tolerating the higher taxes as kind of like, all right, well, I have to take the good with the bad. 
and the bad is the higher taxes. But at some point, the bad outweighs the good and it becomes intolerable. It's like it, it come it goes from being a, a, a tolerable nuisance to an intolerable burden. And they're about to raise the tax rate in California from 13.3 to like 16.7. And they're about to institute a wealth tax and they're going to try to apply the tax to people 10 years after they leave. It's like a sliding scale, but they want to go after you for the 10 years after you leave. And they also want to go after the people who already left. This is the crazier part about the new California wealth tax. If you moved out of the state two, three years ago, it still applies to you. It applies to you even if you moved out nine years ago. <laughs> so, um, you know, they get it. Yeah, well, now, that, that's just insane. I mean, when you say before Democrats are starting to get it, that doesn't tell me they're starting to get it. That tells me that they no, need no. they need a wake-up call and a hard reset from people leaving before they understand the consequences no, of what they're doing. They're starting to get it by trying to resist raising the taxes themselves. In some in California, maybe doesn't get it, but New York, you know, <laughs> where where they're trying to say. We want the federal government to impose these higher taxes so that people don't have a way out. Now, yes, they do have a way out. They have my way, right? They can go to Puerto Rico. Uh, and so, and more people will go to Puerto Rico if there's no, if they can't go to Texas or they can't go to Florida or, you know, Nevada or places like that. But of course, those places still subject you to the federal tax. And so they don't have near the tax advantage of Puerto Rico, but other people regard it as too big a trade-off. You know, they, they have a stigma. They don't think of Puerto Rico. Um, and look, there's problems living in Puerto Rico. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, but there's problems living everywhere. So you have to uh, look at the good with the bad because there's a lot of things that I like about Puerto Rico that have nothing to do with the fact that my taxes are low. So it's not like only taxes, right? If everything sucked about Puerto Rico, if the only thing good about it was that the taxes were lowered, then I wouldn't be there. But there's there's a there's enough good things there in addition to the low taxes that are the reason I want to be there. Now there are things there that I don't like, uh, but again, you know, it's an analysis of the the overall situation that you take into account when you're gonna, when you're going to move someplace. But believe me, there will be a lot of other people. If you make the taxes high enough, they just will leave the country. They will just, you know, give up their citizenship, pay the fine, you know, which is higher and higher now. But uh, that'll happen, too. Yeah. And it just seems to be it's not something you want to overthink. I mean, when people argue for taxation because they think that, oh, you have to do your fair share, you have to do your part to support such and such programs. What it really boils down to is, do you want the government to allocate your money or do you want to allocate your money? And that's it. You know, yep. it's it's whether or not you think that private businesses and privatizations and private charitable giving uh, can take the place of these massively inefficient government programs. And again, going back to our example yep. about waste, fraud and abuse, the government is a very poor capital <laughs> allocator. So it's just it would be like giving your money to a terrible portfolio manager, you know, a guy with a terrible yeah. track record of poor underperformance. And then people say, well, don't don't you want to invest? Yeah, I want to invest, but I don't want to give it to the world's worst allocator. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, the government is not allocating any of their own money. I mean, normally, if you give your money to a hedge fund manager, you want that hedge fund manager to have skin in the game, right? You want him to be a large investor in the portfolio. You don't want to let somebody gamble 
with your money when none of their own money is at risk. Right. And and that's what happens with bureaucrats. They are not managing their own money. And there's no negative consequences if they do it badly. They're not going to get fired. You know, uh, and there's no competition. I mean, managers compete with other managers. The government doesn't compete with anybody. I mean, look, I mean, either you believe in capitalism or you believe in socialism. It's a very black and white thing. Do you think central planners are going to do a good job because they care? Or do you think um, private enterprise capitalists will do a good job because they're trying to maximize profits and understanding what that means in a competitive environment with scarce resources. So, you know, either you're, 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 you're a fool or you're, or, or you're smart, right. Or, and, and it's not just capitalism versus socialism. It's, are you a moral person or are you immoral, right? Do you believe in theft or do you believe in private property? I mean, do you believe that you have the right to take something from somebody else that you didn't earn? Or do you believe that people have the right to, to, to what they earn, right? I, I'm a moral person and I think theft is wrong. You know, I, I believe in the 10 commandments. I don't, there's no asterisks there. Thou shalt not steal. And then there's a little asterisk, except if government helps you, you know, or, you know, <laughs> it, it, or thou shalt not steal except by majority vote. Right. You know, I mean, right. stealing is wrong. I mean, I don't care how you want to dress it up and what kind of pretty bow you want to put on it. Uh, now, does that mean I think that the poor people should just be left to starve? No, of course not. I believe in helping my fellow man, and I believe that people will help their fellow man. They don't need the government to force them to do it. And but when the government forces it, actually, it, it, it screws up the process. But, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, when we talked about the taxes is it's also the incentives. Right. You even think about it. You raise taxes high enough on the upper income people. Right. They don't need the money. Right. There are certain people uh, where if you're you know, you have to work in order to to eat in order to, you know, to survive. Right. And even if taxes are high, you might not have a choice, you know, if tax rates go up. Um, I mean, obviously, you have a choice to stop working at all and go on welfare. So that is a big problem. Or you have a choice to work illegally under the table or things like that. But let's say, you know, you're talking about these very wealthy people that the the Democrats think are not paying their fair share, even though they're paying a lot more than their fair share. Right. Because, you know, if you look at how much of the income tax is being paid by the top one percent, it's what? What is it? I don't know. Forty percent, 50 percent, 60 percent, whatever it is. So clearly they're already paying their fair share. And you're looking at marginal tax rates on money that you earn, you know, north of 40 percent. And depending on what state you live in, you could be looking at a 50 percent tax rate. But if you just decide that you have to substantially increase that to where people are paying 70 percent tax rate, right? You get to the point where people think, what is the purpose of me knocking my brains out for the next 10 or 20 years of my life? Right. And the government's going to take 70% out of what I earn uh, if I earn money. And if I have a bad year and lose money, they're not going to give back anything, right? I mean, they're not going to reach into their pocket and say, hey, you lost some money this year, so we're going to give you back. I mean, they're a silent partner that is only there during the good times and they're not there during the bad times. <laughs> and they do none of the work and they take none of the risk. Right. But if you do well, give me my share. And if you do poorly, you know, they're, they're, not, they're nowhere around. Uh, I think a lot of people will say, you know what? It just ain't worth the hassle. Right. It's not worth the risk. And plus, you know, I can get sued, you know, for who knows what. You know what? Life is short. I've got enough money. I'm just gonna shut down my business. 
I'll sell it for whatever I can get to a competitor who will probably lay off most of my workers and whatever and consolidate. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna retire early. I was planning on working till I was 60, 65. Shit, I'll retire at 50. What's the big deal? You know, I got enough money so my kids will inherit less. It's not worth working, uh, you know, for such a small piece of the action. That's what people will make these decisions. You know, and so is that a good thing that you're you're, you're taxing people? out of business and they you know they're not the ones that are suffering it's the 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 people whose jobs are lost right that suffer it's the customers now that don't have that business and so there's less competition right it's a less competitive market so the people who were you know patronizing this business that shuts down no longer have that business as a choice they have they have limited choices, and now they have to take the next best choice, which maybe is not as good. Or so there, you know, there is a lot of suffering that will result from people who decide to no longer be productive, to just consume, right? To say, you know what, I have enough, right? You have a lot of these Democrats say, when is enough enough, right? Don't you have enough money? And you know what they should say? You know, you're right. I do have enough money. I'm going to stop working. I'm going to fire all my employers, employees. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm, you're right. I have enough. Right. Enough's enough. I'm done. I'm not going to contribute anymore. I'm just going to take. I'm just going to take out of the pot. I'm not going to put any more in. I'm done putting in because you told me I have too much money. All right. All right. So I'm not going to work harder to get more. Right. And then, I mean, and then when the Democrat that goes off on criticizing whatever Amazon goes home and tries to order their laundry detergent from Amazon and finds the websites down, like, what's going on? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, so, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, the, the socialists make all kinds of ridiculous assumptions, asinine assumptions about human behavior. And they just don't understand it. And they don't understand the marketplace. And they don't understand, you know, uh, the benefits of, 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 of resource allocation uh, and, and a competitive market. Uh, because, you know, you have to start from the premise that resources are scarce, and they are. Right. And, and, and so what is the best way to utilize <clears throat> scarce resources in order to deliver the highest standard of living to our people? And you can't make these calculations without a free market. Right. Because you, you don't know what anything is worth unless you can relate it to something else. So you have to have prices. And prices don't exist when government sets them. They only exist in a free market with supply and demand. And that's where people are constantly making decisions based on cost benefits analysis. What do I benefit? What 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 do what do I want versus what do I don't want? And when people want something more, then the price is higher. And, and when they want it less, the price is lower. And and then that uh, sends the right signals to how to utilize these particular uh, inputs. You know, don't waste this here because it's very valuable. We need it in other places. Uh, but bureaucrats have no idea what to do. They'll date they, because they, there's no market sense. It's just that, you know, they're trying to guess. They're, 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 they're in the dark. They have no guideposts on what to do. Uh, and, and then the profit motive. I mean, the fact that, you know, when people make a profit, the market is saying, we like what you're doing. Do more of it. Right. You're, you're, you're satisfying our demand, our needs. You're, you're, you're making our lives better. When a businessman comes up with a product and now he's losing money selling it, the market is saying, you idiot, you know, stop what you're doing. You know, you're destroying value. You're wasting resources. You, you're, you're, you know, whatever you're doing is, 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 is costing society. And of course you will stop 
because there's a limit to how much of your own money you're willing to lose, right? You're right. The, if the market you're making a mistake, you're not going to keep making it when your own money's on the line. But if you're a bureaucrat, who gives a damn how much taxpayer money you lose? You don't care. It's not your money. And if resources yeah. are scarce, do you want them in the hands of the people that can produce with them efficiently? Or do you want them in the hands of people that are going to squander them and, and waste them? Nobody wins. Even if it's even if we're talking about something like oil, for instance, if we're talking, you know, which is a Democrats hate oil and they hate the oil and gas industry. Right. But do you and we have a finite amount of uh, oil and gas as a resource on the planet, at least for the time being, until we can synthesize it or until we mine an asteroid or whatever. So <clears throat> for the time being, do you want that resource in the hands of the companies that are efficient in processing it and get the most bang for, you know, per barrel of oil? Or do you want to uh, allocate those resources to somebody that's just going to go out and squander it, right? And the market kind of, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and well, the, the, the other crazy part about it is see how people on the left who um, don't like the oil companies or, oh, you know, we should. All right. So let's just assume that we just completely say, OK, no more fossil fuels. We, we agree it's bad for the environment. You know, we're we're just going to go green. Right. Who is the ones that are going to suffer the most from that decision? Poor people. Right. Because the cost of energy will go way up in an environment where we no longer have fossil fuels because why are we using them we're using them because that's our best alternative money wise right. i mean you know, we're doing it because the consumer wants cheap energy and they want cheaper products that need cheaper energy to be produced and transported so to the extent that we eliminate that alternative from the market and we just have to generate all of our energy through solar or through wind or you know wherever we're going to do it we're going to generate a lot less energy the price of that energy is going to be much higher and the price of everything that is produced and transported is going to be much higher. So who is that going to hurt the most? The really rich people? No. All right. Well, they'll just pay the higher prices. OK, <laughs> it's going to hurt the poor people the most. Well, so and, and what, that goes how, to how are we going to replace that? What is the government then going to do when we no longer have an inexpensive source of energy for the masses? Yeah, it also goes to a fundamental misunderstanding of oil and gas and petroleum's uses because it's not just, uh, you know, Democrats think, OK, well, I, they, they see the uh, the diesel dump truck going down the highway and spewing out black smoke or they see the I'll never forget when Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez tweeted out after we had a, an explosion in Philadelphia at a petroleum plant like a year or two ago. And she tweeted out, you know, see, this is what happens, you know, like the people that were injured in that, you know, that they deserved that for some reason. And and then she went back probably to drinking her water out of a plastic bottle or pouring her laundry detergent out of a high density polyethylene bottle with no clue, no clue as to the role that these things. So it wouldn't just be the gas at the uh, at the pump that would go up, Peter, and it wouldn't just be the cost of manufacturing that would go up because everybody uses oil and gas uh, to power these uh, products. But, you know, a lot of the reasons that people have cheap goods available to them uh, is because of the use of petroleum in things like plastics. So they, they, just, they just don't have a clue. They, they, yeah. they, they seem to be 
they seem to not have the ability to differentiate between uh, one thing and the next. And it's uh, like many of these things we're talking about. They're very complex arguments. So to throw a blanket over all of them, it does way more harm than good, right? Yeah, and of course, you know, they act like these oil companies are these really evil people that are just forcing everybody to use oil, right? Right. Uh, as, as if they don't have a choice. Like, everybody has a choice. Like, you could go buy an all-electric car. I mean, I, I, I own two of them. I mean, I mean, one's a hybrid, but I have one that's all electric. So you can buy an electric car if you want. Um, you know, so you could go green. You could buy solar panels and, and, and put them on, on your roof. Uh, you know, you could go off the grid. Nobody is forcing anybody to do anything, right? Uh, Americans are choosing to use the oil because it is their best alternative. It's the one that they can most afford. So the oil companies are simply giving the public what the public wants. Right. That's what they're doing. They're not being mean and evil. I mean, what would be mean and evil would be to withhold the oil from the public, right? Oh, you can't have any of this, even though even though you want it. But it's easy to vilify them, these, you know, these horrible oil companies, you know, and, 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 and of course, I think, too, because people don't necessarily like paying for gas, you know, because you buy your gas and then it's gone. Right. It's not like, you know, <laughs> I mean, but they don't realize that what they're buying is transportation is the ability. I mean, your car, if you have a gasoline powered car. If you have no gas, your car is worthless. What are you going to do with it if you can't drive it? So it is very important. I mean, you're getting something, but, you know, people like, you know, they kind of regret it, you know, and and the price goes up. I mean, they see it going up and they don't look at the other factors. Oh, these greedy oil companies just trying to make more money. Uh, But they don't realize that maybe the cost, the cost of oil, it's a competitive market. I mean, can you think of anything more competitive? Look at all those gas stations. Every time there's a gas station, there's one right across the street. Right. I mean, how could they be ripping you off where there's so much competition? Right. So whatever the prices that you're paying, just reflect the market, you know, Uh, and believe me, prices are going to go up a lot, too, now because of inflation. And a lot of people are going to hate oil companies even more because the government is going to blame high gas prices on greedy oil companies. I mean, they're never going to accept responsibility. They're not going to say, well, you know, the Fed printed all this money uh, so that the PPP checks wouldn't bounce or so you can get your supplemental unemployment. And because we printed all this money to send you these unemployment checks, that's why gas is so expensive. That's why food is so expensive. They're never going to admit that. Explain why you think oil prices will go higher. And also, have you seen the price of lumber lately? I wanted to ask you. Yeah, I saw that chart on Zero Hedge. That you know, and of course, look at the housing, right? The housing people are the housing starts are are demanding it, but of course, you know, the reason that the housing market is doing so well is because the economy is so bad. Everyone's trying to escape the cities right now, and they're just they're just moving into the suburbs. <laughs> and there's so many reasons to try to get out of the cities right now. But I- I'm wondering what's going to happen to the condos that these people own that they haven't been able to sell when they just dump them on the market or or they go into foreclosure. Or, you know, a lot of these people, you know, were renting and now the landlords are going to be stuck without any tenants. And a lot of these guys have have uh, debt, you know, I mean, and, and all the commercial real estate, too. I mean, everybody is levered up, you know, every er, 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 I mean, it wouldn't be so bad if rents went down, if the landlords didn't have a lot of debt because, you know, they would just earn less money. But when they have all this debt against their properties, it, this is a big deal, you know. Yeah, I think that commodities in general 
make for just make an interesting case. Are there are there any other commodities other than uh, oil that you know you've mentioned oil on your podcast, you've mentioned it on your YouTube channel and in interviews. Any other commodities aside from precious metals and oil that you find interesting? Well, I think a lot of them are going to go up, right? It's not just, uh, you know, uh, oil or gold or lumber. But here's really the dynamic. People have to understand this because a lot of people have looked at the COVID situation and their initial um, determination was, oh, this is deflationary, right? All they look at is the demand side of the equation. Right. And they see the, the initial effect of COVID on economic activity, right? And economic activity uh, is diminished. People are staying at home, so they're not traveling as much, they're not flying. And so all of this caught the market off guard, right? Because the market is supplied for a normal amount of activity. And then all of a sudden, at a left field, there's this collapse in demand. And so initially, the market you know, has all this supply and there's nobody that wants to buy it. So the immediate impact is going to be prices go down, right? I mean, that's obvious, right? To clear the market. And what happened was a lot of people looked at this and just assumed that this is forever, that right. the market's not going to adjust to this uh, decline in demand. But they do, the markets quickly adjust. What happens is, future supply goes down, right? Because the, the businesses are losing money after they get rid of all their inventory. Um, they, they, they adjust, right? And they, they reduce the, the supply uh, that they have. Their inventories are going to go down. Right. All right. And, and so then as supply cuts, like let's say in oil, Right. Oil prices um, initially come down because you know people aren't traveling as much. People aren't flying as much. So what happens is oil prices come down and now oil producers say, oh, shoot, we, we, we have to cut back on production right. because we're losing all this money. And so supply eventually comes down to meet the reduced level of demand at some type of new equilibrium where the producers can now make a profit, right? Because they, 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 they and, but that's going to be at a much lower level of, of, uh, of production. So then once the market comes into balance at this new equilibrium where there's a lot less demand, but there's also a lot less supply, the market can find a new equilibrium at a higher price than it was before. Because a lot of times when the supply goes down, some of the economies of scale are lost and the production costs end up being higher to produce at a lower level than they were when you were producing at a higher level. Um, and, and you end up with a market that clears at a higher price. And I think that's what's going to happen across the board is you're going to see uh, prices going up. And I think one of the great examples is air travel because initially um, you know, ticket prices really plunged because the, the airlines were caught off guard. They had all these planes that were already scheduled to fly and nobody was buying tickets. The planes were already in the air. So ticket prices just collapsed because it was like, well, what the hell? We, you know, the planes are flying anyway. We might as well <laughs> right. get another body on there. But once the, once the airlines cancel enough flights, 
send enough planes to the Mojave Desert or whatever they are, fire enough uh, flight attendants, pilots, baggage handlers, scale back their businesses to where they're operating a much smaller uh, number of flights. Now they have now they can really jack prices up because they don't have all these empty planes to fill and they're not going to serve as many cities. And so the the initial effect of the inc- of the decrease in demand for air travel is that ticket prices fall, but the long-term effect is that a much smaller airline industry is going to mean much higher prices. So fewer people will fly, but the ones who do will pay a lot more money to do it. Right? Because the airline is not going to be able to amortize the cost among as large a group of people, right? If fewer people are flying, then they're going to pay more to do it. And so this is what's going to happen across the entire economy. So people who are thinking that what they're looking at is deflation, they couldn't be more wrong. Because if you actually think about the dynamics, it's supply that's going down. Fewer people are going to work. And so those people are no longer producing whatever it was they used to make, whether it was a service that they're no longer providing or – uh, a good that they're no longer producing. And so now there's a, a, a smaller supply of those goods, right? If there's not enough people given haircuts, the few that are there are going to charge more. There's not enough restaurants. If 50, 60, 70% of the restaurants go out of business, well, the restaurants that are there are going to have to charge more money, especially if they have to operate at, you know, 25% of capacity. You know, if they only could do outdoor seating or, you know, they can't serve alcohol. You know, hey, in Puerto Rico, they won't even let the restaurants serve alcohol. I mean, so they got to make all their profits on the food because they can't make any of it off the alcohol. So, what I mean, I mean, so a lot of this stuff is going to be causing prices to, to pick up. But at the same time that we're producing less stuff, the government is producing more money. So that is actually generating more demand. So even though demand is falling, it's actually increasing because of the new money. Right. So as people get money, that money contributes to demand because they can spend it and bid up prices. So you're having two things happening at the same time. We're producing fewer goods and services, yet printing more money to buy that diminished supply of goods and services. So it's a double barrel. Right. And so prices are going to be accelerating because demand is collapsed. I mean, because supply is going down and money printing demand is going up. And it's, so, it's mean, mystifying that when people talk about this and they make this deflationary argument that you never hear them talk about supply chain disruption or, you know, a great example, Peter, is is meat, right? What did we see over the last uh, couple of months? We saw a shortage in meat. I would go to the supermarket and the meat case was empty and they would there would be signs up, you know, two per person or three per person. And so you it's incredible to go out and see real world examples like that real world examples of of supply chain disruption and exactly what you're talking about less production and then you hear these deflationary arguments made and nobody ever acknowledges that yeah i just found out i didn't even realize this because i wasn't in the market for a bicycle but i just found out that like there's no bicycles forget it forget it not only is there no not only is there no bicycles but you can't get service anywhere i have three shops near me and I have one that is reluctantly taking my business to service my bike. But I called another one. Uh, I called Perky Omen Bicycle, which is on the Perky Omen Trail out by me. 
And I said, hey, you know, can you can you do a tune-up? I need, you know, I need a new chain. I need this, that, and the other. I wanted to come in. I wanted to spend money. The guy just said, forget about it. He just said, forget it. We can't do it. We're booked up through, you know, the, the end of November or whatever. And I was like, oh, my God. So I was lucky to find somebody around here. But you can't buy bicycles anywhere right now. Yeah, because well, they're all made in China. And, and the parts aren't here. The bikes aren't here. And demand and is- has skyrocketed. Yeah, people, because bicycling is, I guess, that's what you could do now. You could get right. on your bike. And so people want to go ride a bike, and they can't go to the gym, and not everybody wants a Peloton bike. They want to actually, you know, go out. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, so where's the deflation in bicycles? We're, we're, you know, I mean, prices, so, you know, prices are going up. And, they're, and, look, we have barely seen anything yet because wait till the dollar really starts to fall. And again, that's another situation where the initial reaction was wrong, right? As soon as COVID really hit, we got this big rally in the dollar because the dollar index had already started to come down before COVID. And, and the dollar index had got all the way down to about um, 95, 96-ish um, uh and and then it rallied to 103. Remember in March you had that big dollar rally. Yep. And everybody was 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 saying, oh yeah, you know the dollar is going to have this big rally. Flight to safety, right? And you know, and 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 um, all the the rest of the world was screwed because you know there was a dollar shortage. Everybody needs dollars. Well, look where the dollar is now, right? The dollar index is barely above 93. So we've had a, a pretty big, like a 10-handle 10, 10 decline, really, in the dollar index. And um, we're headed much lower. And when you know once we really break, I mean, I think by next year, we will be considerably lower in the dollar index. I mean, I think we'll be south of 80 uh, by next year uh, and, and maybe even below 70, which would be an all-time record low. Uh, I think we're going to get into that territory if not in 2021 by 2022. But this is going to be a major, major reduction in the value of the dollar. And obviously, this is going to send the cost of our imports up dramatically. You know, so, I mean, there's going to be incredible uh, pressures. And we don't have anything to we don't have anything to export. Right. I mean, with that, well, with with the shrinking of the dollar uh, or the uh, would the collapse in the dollar encourage uh, production in the country because uh, ostensibly people would want to uh, uh, people would want to import from the U.S. to take advantage of the weak dollar. I I don't really think so, especially if we end up with more taxes and regulations that just undermine our our productivity. So I think what we're going to export more of is certainly food, you know, and 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 there's a lot of things that we import. That you know, we import a lot of food too. I mean, people, you know, we import ninety percent of our seafood. I mean, people don't even realize that, right. you know. And so, fish is going to get very expensive in America. You know, all kinds of fish. But I think a lot of our agricultural products, we're going to export a lot more agriculture. We're definitely going to do that. Uh, so the farmers are going to get real busy. But it means that eating is going to be very expensive in America because if we're going to export more of what we produce, that means there's less available for Americans. And so you're going to have to pay much higher prices. Uh, and, you know, and of course, right, farmers have the option. They could sell abroad or they can sell here. And yes, Americans have an advantage in that the transportation costs 
are lower if we you know if you just have to ship it you know to somewhere in the US but if the dollar really plunges farmers now have a much more vibrant market if they sell their goods in Europe or Asia or someplace like that or the Middle East and, and so Americans have to compete with those buyers by 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 paying higher prices but I think where you're really going to see the impact on prices is not going to be for the stuff that we're making but the stuff that's already been made the stuff that's here right so we have a lot of cars on the road right so used car prices could eventually go way up because more of our used cars could be bought by uh, Asians and just put on boats and sent over there and so that's what they end up buying and so the supply of used cars in America really declines because they're all getting shipped overseas and the same could happen with a lot of other products uh, that are still useful in other markets you know a lot of the consumer goods that Americans uh, had purchased you know you know they may still have some used value and they and they they, they they'll go abroad um, and so what happens is a lot of the stuff ends up leaving the country and what comes in money paper money right, right? <laughs> and so and, and what people forget too is that while the dollar while everybody had confidence in the dollar they had confidence in our financial markets and so they would take the dollars and they would buy bonds or they would buy stocks or you know things like that but if they no longer have confidence in the dollar and they don't want to be in our financial assets well then they're selling those yeah and and, and, and then they're using the money to buy real things absolutely i have so uh... the inflation the inflation goes out of the financial market where everybody likes it into the goods market where nobody likes it. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. And then it'll start to become very real for some people that it hasn't become real for. Uh, listen, I have uh, one more question for you. I want to thank you for being generous with your time this morning. Uh, I, I watched your video with Jim Rickards that you did on uh, Kitco. You did this great three parts. Well, first and foremost, I want to recommend that people watch your Money Show video too. Uh, that was like 25 minutes of just uh, pure... I really got a sense of urgency from that video that I didn't get from uh, your podcast. I mean, really, you've been on it, but that video, I think if people are going to watch one Peter Schiff video, they should watch your Money Show video because it's 25 minutes and just strap in and hold the fuck on, and that's what I'll say about that. You also did a video with Jim Rickards on Kitco. You did a three-part series that I thought was really great. Uh, it was, uh, I think each section was about 15 minutes. I recommend that people watch those as well. I wanted to get your take on just a couple things that were brought up during that discussion, and then I'm going to let you go for the day. Uh, there's a few things. The first is the idea that Rickards brings up that gold is climbing a wall of worry and that at some point, it's not going to be a struggle anymore. So whatever the magic number is, if it's 2300 or 2700 or 2100, at some point the moves are going to start to get wild and they're going to start to get much much larger. Uh you know, as you approach what we would call blow off top, right? In technical analysis. That's number 1. Number 2 is Rickards says he thinks gold will be at 15000 by 2025. And if he's wrong, Peter, it will be because it has gone higher uh, quicker. He, <laughs> you know, it's not that it's not going to get there by 2025. It's that it may blow through that prior to 2025. And the third thing is the argument that you have with him over inflation. 
and the definition of inflation. He still sees it as prices rising. We've already kind of covered that. But if you want to touch on whether or not you think his $15,000 gold prediction by 2025 is accurate and whether you think gold is still climbing a wall of worry and it's going to be a struggle to move higher, but then it won't. I'd love to hear your comments on those. Yeah, sure. First of all, you know, it really wasn't a three-part interview. We just did one interview and Kitco decided to release it in three parts. And it wasn't that long. And maybe the whole thing was 17 minutes, 20 minutes. So it wasn't, the, the, the segments were a little shorter. And the, the third one was where we had the disagreement over inflation. And, you know, that 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 one, I I spoke the most. I, I spoke a lot more than than uh, Rickards, mainly because I got the last word in. So I know a lot of people were looking at, hey, Peter, you got to you got to let Rickards talk. He, he spoke for about the same amount of time. If you look at the other two videos uh, that they put out. So but at the end, yeah, he did make a comment that I disagree with, which resulted in my, you know, really trying to explain to uh, to Rickards and anybody else you know, why Rickards was wrong on on his uh, definition of inflation. Uh, but look, as far as where I agree with Rickards, look, the price of gold is going much, much higher. And so there's really like no price forecast at this point that you could say is off is like so outrageous that it's not possible. Right. Even if somebody said, I think gold's going to go to one hundred thousand dollars. Right. I mean, I'm not going to say that's impossible because it could do it, right? Um, because there's no limit to how much value the dollar could lose, right? That that's that's really what gold is doing. It's it's gold isn't going up; it's the dollar that's going down. And since, you know, intrinsically the dollar could have no value at all, the dollar could literally go to zero, right? If nobody wanted it, and so if the dollar was worthless, well, there is no price for gold. Gold's infinity, right? And so there's gold can go a lot higher. Fifteen thousand dollars is not outrageous at all. I mean, the Dow Jones is well above fifteen thousand uh, dollars price, right? What's the Dow at right now? Is it twenty six thousand, twenty seven thousand? Yeah, I think it's around uh, twenty seven thousand. Oh, no, actually, it's almost twenty eight thousand. What am I telling you? I, it's hard to keep track. I just looked at it, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, but historically, the the price of gold and the Dow have been the same. They were the same in 1932, and they were the same in 1980. So, you know, at extreme bear markets, uh, the Dow has a tendency to be worth an ounce of gold. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the the uh, price of the Dow is always a realistic target for the price of gold because it's going to happen at some point. Now, obviously, the Dow can fall a lot, you know, before it meets the price of gold. So it doesn't mean that gold's going to go to 28,000 because the Dow's at 28,000. But if the Dow falls to 10,000, gold could rise to 10,000 and they can meet that way. But I, I think anywhere the Dow is, you could say is a legitimate potential price for, for an ounce of gold. Um, but when, when you look at the amount of money that we are going to be printing, not only now but in the future – and the amount of debt you know that we're going to be monetizing and the fact that the more debt we have the harder it is to stop it right it's like it's like any kind of drug problem probably the 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 the, the worse it is the harder it is to quit that quit the habit right the, the more drugs you're taking and the longer you're taking them um, the harder right i mean if i if i if i decide or if i decided to start smoking tomorrow and then quit 
the day after, it probably wouldn't be too hard. If I'm, I've been smoking for a day, I could probably quit, right? <laughs> but, but, but if you let your habit get up to three packs a day for 20 years, you know, it, it's it's a much harder habit to to kick, right? I mean, to, so it, where we are now, the Fed isn't even smoking them anymore. The Fed is just eating cigarettes at this point. <laughs> so you know, based on where we are now, to assume that we are going to avoid a monetary crisis to me is to ignore every lesson of history i think the odds of us escaping from this without a monetary crisis are are so negligible as to be completely dismissed now what i do know from experience is that these problems can go on without a real catastrophe for longer than you think. But what we know from, let's say, 2008 is they don't go on indefinitely. So even if the bubble can get bigger than you think, it will eventually pop. And I think the evidence is clear that this bubble has already popped. It's just that the air is coming out slowly at the moment, I mean, in some respects. Right. Um, but it is coming out, and it is the mother of all bubbles. And and so, I would not be surprised if gold was at fifteen thousand. I would not be surprised if it was higher than fifteen thousand. Would I be surprised if in five years it's below fifteen thousand? I mean, I guess not. I mean, it could be. You know, I mean, certainly it could be uh, well below that, uh, and then it could skyrocket uh, the next year. I don't know. I mean, because obviously. Anything could happen. I mean, I've seen that. I mean, it's possible. But in the end, right? If if the price if the price of the Dow Jones does not crash, you know, you know, to five thousand or one, you know, some really gold's going to go up there. The only way to keep the asset prices from imploding is to let the price of gold explode. I mean, that's right. what's going to happen. And and I do agree with Rickards that gold is climbing a wall of worry. Look, gold stocks actually finished the week most of them were down last week so the the market finds out that warren buffett bought barrett gold after the close on friday <laughs> barrett gold barrett gold was up on the week but if you take barrett gold out of the gdx right gold stocks were down on the week and if you look at the junior miners the gdxj right that doesn't have barrett it was down on the week so how do you get a situation where this is the first week that we find out that Warren Buffett is buying gold stocks and gold stocks are down on the week. Right. I mean, so clearly this is not a crazed market where everybody is optimistic and looking for all kinds of reasons to buy. People are like, oh, maybe this is the top of the market. Right. Buffett's the dumb, the dumb money coming in late to the party. I mean, I don't know, you know, but yes, uh, you know, but where do you see markets just going up without any concern, right? That's in the tech stocks, right? There are, there are bubbles out there that you can see where prices just go up every day and there's no corrections and, and nobody's worried and nobody cares. Um, that's not the gold market. The gold market is scratching and clawing to make new highs. I mean, right. it is one step forward, two steps back, right? I mean, it's like, you know, every rally is a reason to sell. Uh, nobody believes it. Everybody thinks every time and look at the drops, right? When gold goes down, it really goes down. 
you know, you get a, we had, we had one day, I was, it was Tuesday of last week, gold was down $120 in one day. I mean, look at the drop it just had, I think on Thursday it was down 60, 70 bucks. No reason, no bad news. People are very scared. They got one foot out the door. Right. Um, so yeah, we are climbing a wall of worry, which as far as I'm concerned is extremely bullish for this market. You know, we don't have excess enthusiasm. We still have a very, very healthy supply of skepticism and fear in the gold market, in particularly the gold stock market. More, more in the stock market, in the market for shares, than for the market for the metal itself. Because the the, the people buying gold are predominantly defensive uh, buyers, and a lot of them are central banks. But the people buying gold stocks are investors and speculators. And so uh, that's where you have all the fear uh, because they are they, they're not convinced. They're not sold on this bull market. They think that people who are buying gold are going to stop buying because a lot of times they don't even understand. I mean, I hear a lot of these uh, people on CNBC, you know, saying why people are buying gold and but they're not buying any of themselves. So how the hell do they know why people are buying gold if they're not <laughs> buying? They've never bought any, you know. Like Warren, uh, what's his name? Paul Krugman did a column about why people are buying gold. Oh, and he, said, he said he said they're not buying gold because of inflation. Well, how does he know? He's not buying any, and of course that's why they're buying it. I mean, and if if Krugman was smart enough to know that there was inflation, he'd be buying gold too. He do just you, doesn't know it. Do you call him Krugman on purpose? Or Krugman, yeah, right. Krugman. I, you know, for some reason, I always mispronounce his name, even when I get it right. Oh, but I think it's funny though. I think it's. I think you should keep calling him Krugman. I think it's hilarious. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I I mispronounce a lot of people's names. You know, some, it's something I inherited from my dad. My dad used to. I used to make fun of him for mispronouncing names, but then I. I <laughs> and now Spencer yeah, will make fun Krugman, of you for Krugman. it. I gotta. You know, I don't know when you when you look at it. If you read it, does it look like Krugman? Who or? cares? We're gonna stick with Krugman. Yeah, he argued that that real rates is what was driving buying gold, right? Yeah, but we're, yeah, and again, I mentioned that earlier in the podcast. Why are real rates, well, first of all, it's not real rates. It's, because yeah, real rates are negative, but that's because the Fed is creating all this inflation. It's inflation, that's why real rates are negative, because it's the nominal rate minus the inflation rate. So you can't say, well, they're not buying gold because of inflation. They're buying gold because of negative real rates. Duh, that's inflation. That's what's driving that. <laughs> what is? What do you think of a human being that has the mindset that debt is money we owe to ourselves? What's your take on that mindset? What kind of mental gymnastics do you think a person has to do to get there? Well, I mean, it would only matter if you actually owed it to yourself. So, for example, if you wrote yourself a check for $100, then the debt wouldn't matter, right? right. And neither would the asset. So you can't pretend that you have an asset any more than, you know, you could, you know, you know, pretend that you, you know, have debt, right? Because you owe it to yourselves. But in America, we don't owe it to ourselves because only some people own the bonds. Right. And other people. So if you wrote me a check for for a thousand dollars, right, there's you have a liability of a thousand and I have an asset in the thousand. We're both Americans. So you can say, hey, we have no debt because we owe it to ourselves. Well, you have debt because you owe it to me. Right. <laughs> but, 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 but the problem is if you can't pay me, I've got a problem. Right. Because now, you know, and, you know, the government, you know, tries to have make that calculation, too, when it comes to uh, their, the government trust funds. The government says, oh, we've got a Social Security trust fund. Oh, we've got a trillion dollars in this Social Security trust fund. Well, no, you don't. 
because you owe the money to that trust fund. The government, because oh, the trust fund just has treasuries in it. So just like if you write yourself a check, that's not an asset to you. The Social Security Trust Fund is not an asset to the government because it's the only asset it has is its own liability. So, you know, the, the idea that it's not a problem when you owe something to yourself it, it, it is wrong because you have huge problems when you have unpayable debt and then you have a bunch of people that treat that debt as an asset even though it's unpayable. Right. I mean, what happens to all the insurance companies and all the pension funds and the annuities and the 401ks and all this when they realize they have nothing? Right. Yep. Right, because it's only as good, you know, these assets are only as good as the ability of the debtors to make good, but they can't. And the only way these liabilities are going to get paid is if the Fed uh, assumes them and prints the money. But then what good is your annuity or your pension if the money that you're earning doesn't buy anything? It's not good at all. So people are in for a rude awakening when they have to realize that their assets are not money good, that they don't have them because the debtors aren't good for it. So that is the problem. Yes, if you have a reasonable amount of debt, then the debt can be paid. But if you have an enormous amount of debt, it can't be paid. And it doesn't matter that one group of Americans owes the debt to another group of Americans. The group of Americans that owe it don't have the money. That means the group of, the group of, the group of Americans who are owed are never going to get the money. But the reality, though, <clears throat> when it comes to America is we don't even owe it to ourselves. A lot of the debt is owed to foreigners. So it's even worse. Because a lot of the people who are getting the money don't even live here. But the people who owe the money do. Will you run for president? Oh, I mean, I'm not running now, obviously. Well, I know you're not running now. But will you? I don't know. You know, it, you know, it, it, it's hard to say if I'd ever run for president. I mean, certainly, I mean, under the right circumstances, I might. But a lot of people could, could, could say that they might do that under the right circumstances. The question is, do I think those circumstances uh, will ever arise? I don't know. You know, and then the question would be, if I ran for president, I mean, clearly I can run for president the way people run for president, you know, like on, on the Libertarian Party. I'm pretty sure that if I wanted to get the Libertarian nomination, if that was my goal, I'm pretty sure I could get that nomination. But is that nomination worth anything other than, you know, publicity, which I don't right. need because nobody who's had that nomination, you know, including Ron Paul has come close to even winning one state, let alone like the electoral college. Well, I just becoming... think about, I think about the change in the political landscape that Ron Paul ushered in just by running as a Republican getting on the debate stage, espousing his ideas. Yeah. I mean, public. he ran as, he ran as a Republican and clearly, I mean, I think that if I ran in the Republican primary, right, that, I mean, I could obviously do that, but winning the Republican nomination, I mean, I couldn't even win the Republican nomination to the U.S. Senate in the state of Connecticut. Now, I may have been able to win the Republican nomination in a, in a, in a different state. I, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, but that was a long uh, time ago, though. I mean, you have a lot yeah, more you have a lot more yeah. outreach now. You have a bigger, you know, presence. You have way more, you know, you have guys like me and Rogan and all these people now that have big social media followings that would would love to uh, give you more and as much publicity as you would want. Yeah, it's just the question is, you know, is the truth, is there any way to 
win public office telling the truth. Right. And, uh, and, and not just being Santa Claus and just promising something for nothing. I mean, is the American electorate at this point so hopelessly dumbed down and trained to, to want something for nothing right. that a candidate just promising, you know, economic freedom and, and, and prosperity that's going to, you know, result from, from, from freedom. I mean, I, obviously I think if things get bad enough, right, if we do have the hyperinflation or some things get really, really bad to the point where these promises don't really amount to anything anymore. Um, uh, but then, I mean, who knows if we'll even have elections by then? I mean, we could just be a totalitarian nation. But um, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it is a very, very difficult thing, um, you know, a democracy. And, uh, you know, especially when you have to win an election with a soundbite. And, you know, freedom, really, it's hard to, uh, you know, win that debate with a bumper sticker or a 30-second commercial uh, when the other guy can just say you're you're mean and you're going to take away something, you know right. you you don't care about the poor, you don't care about students, you don't care about the elderly, you don't care about sick, you want people to die, you just want the rich to have health care. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's very difficult to to explain, uh, you know, these, uh, um, you know, they're not really complicated, but you know, the, it, the, it's hard to condense them when you're fighting for somebody's attention, you know, in a in a in a in you know in such a short media but it's, and, not, and, it's not just economic collapse though peter i think that the american electorate is just getting fed up with the two-party system and i think they're getting fed up i think they know now more than ever that they're being fed lines of bullshit on both sides of the aisle right but the problem is it's very hard to outvote the takers the people who are on the government dole and who want checks from the government you know their their their, their numbers are hard to get around right and, and and so they're just gonna constantly want more I mean they don't want freedom they want to be taken care of you know they want the free stuff they couldn't care less about you know uh, you know economic freedom as long as you know as long as you know they get money and and uh, so the people paying the bills are just getting fewer and fewer in number and so you know democracy is this numbers game and you know that's why the Democrats you know they still want to they want to lower the voting age they want to bring in uh, you know the teenagers and get them voting you know the dumber the better as far as they're concerned young and dumb and you know have them vote you know so it, 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 it it's tough you know so uh, but we'll see I mean you know the internet at least the internet is there I think the internet makes it easier if you can get somebody's attention you 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 know I, somebody like me, has the ability to get a message out today that you know is much greater than what my ability might have been you know in the 1980s right. or 1980s when I would re I would rely on um, the conventional media to put me on which they wouldn't do right they could black me out right so the media could just not cover my campaign but I can launch a campaign online that the media really can't stop at least i don't think although you never know maybe youtube and uh twitter and facebook can you know somehow blackball me and deplatform me and 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 just somehow label my message as hate and uh and and, and try to stifle it that way i mean so it's not like it's impossible for these forces to try to you know put roadblocks in front of you and that's how that's how new candidates who have really made an impact have done it and i you know i keep going back to Ron Paul because for me that was like one of the originals in in 2008 when he ran 
it was huge on YouTube. It, the, his his following, the, the you know they called it the Ron Paul Revolution at the time. His following was really right at that inflection point where YouTube had really taken hold and people were getting his message via the internet, even though he wasn't getting the time on the debate stage. And now we just saw it with Andrew Yang too, right? Andrew Yang didn't get a ton of time on the debate stage either, but he made such a huge impact. The Yang gang. Yeah, and I I mentioned that I thought Andrew Yang was probably the smartest of the Democrats running, which obviously is the low bar. Um, But you know, I disagree with him on a lot of the stuff that he says, but he's obviously a smart guy, um, and, and and he did pick up a following. But I very much remember the 08 Ron Paul because that's where I was active. I mean, I was officially the, an economic advisor to the Ron Paul campaign, and and so a lot of people were you know were introduced to me from Ron Paul. I mean, I introduced some people to Ron Paul, but Ron Paul introduced a lot of people to me. And even some of my TV appearances back then, I was like, well, yeah, I'm, a, I'm the advisor to the Ron Paul campaign. Um, and, of course, when Ron Paul was running in 08, the campaign started before the financial crisis. So he was the one guy that was warning about the housing bubble and the coming financial crisis before it happened. And then I remember being very critical of John McCain even during the race because he, he interrupted his campaign to go back to Washington to vote in favor of TARP. And I was like, come on, at least interrupt your campaign to vote against Tarp. <laughs> I mean, at least, I, you know, I mean, don't, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it'd be so important to, to vote. You're the Republican and you have to interrupt your campaign to vote for this big socialist government bailout right. to show, you know. Um, but Ron Paul was the guy that was opposed to it, you know, and he and he was warning about the problems at Fannie and Freddie uh, while all these other guys were in denial. How did you meet him? Oh, I mean, I've known him for a long time. I mean, I've met him on many occasions, but I've always liked Ron Paul when he was in Congress, even though I never lived in Texas, which was where he was a congressional uh, representative. He, for many, many years, he was the only congressman who I liked, I mean, who really represented me, even though he didn't technically represent me in my district, he was like my congressman. He was like the only one I had out of 300, 435. <laughs> he was, he was my congressman. Right. Even though I lived in California or I lived in New York or wherever I was, Ron Paul was my congressman. And, and, and so, and when he ran for president as a libertarian, I voted for him. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, he was the one true, um, statesman in, in the house. Um, he wasn't really making a difference in that, you know, he wasn't getting any legislation through. And more importantly, he wasn't blocking any legislation from being enacted, even though, like, you know, you'd see these votes in Congress and there'd be one guy that would vote against it. And I would know immediately that that was wrong. But you know, he was the only guy that had the integrity right. to vote against something that was politically popular. You know, and and so that's why he made enemies in the Republican Party, too, because he he didn't want to cooperate when they were doing bad things. And there were some Republicans, I think, that really resented. But then privately envied Ron Paul because they believed in that stuff, too. They just didn't have the guts to 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 vote against the stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he was willing to put his principle above politics and if it meant that he didn't get reelected well he didn't get reelected but i think he was in a pretty safe district and i think his people liked him and and so you know he had a little ability 
to take a stand on principle. But a lot of other Republicans refused to stand on principle. They compromised whenever it was required. And so he would remind them of their own flaws, you know, of like, hey, this is a guy that's actually standing up and doing what's right. And there are Republicans that went to Congress that initially went, I believe, with good intentions. Right. I believe that there were Republicans who really believed in, you know, Ron Paul type stuff. But once they got to Washington, they got corrupted by the the establishment there and the power uh, that goes along with it. And, uh, and, and and they end up just compromising because they learn very quickly that if they want to get anywhere, they have to compromise. Right. And the powers that be, if they if they don't want to be ostracized, if they want to get on the right committees, uh, if they want to be able to fundraise, they got to get with the program. And if they don't get with the program, they're not going to stay in Congress. Do you, do, and, do you, and you still talk and, to him? Yeah, well, yeah, once in a while. But then, you know, let me finish the thought. What happens is they start to rationalize then. I think this is what a lot of congressmen do. They say, well, I'm going to vote for this stuff, even though it's bad, because if I don't vote for it, I'm not going to get reelected. And then somebody else is going to take this seat who's going to be even worse than me. And they're going to vote for even more bad stuff. So I got to hold my nose and vote for legislation that I don't believe in because it's the only way to keep my seat. And it's the only way from keeping somebody who doesn't realize how bad this legislation is from taking my seat. So I'm going to try to do as little harm as I can because if I'm not here, somebody else will come in and do even more harm. So I think that's part of the way they, 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 they rationalize, uh, you know, what they're doing. But again, too, I think for a lot of people, being a congressman and living in Washington, D.C. is fun. I think it's a respected, it's a powerful position, and people just fall in love with it. And they don't want to lose it. They don't want to give it up. So that's another reason if we just had some term limits, that might help to let people know, hey, this is not a career, buddy. This is public service. This is like a duty in the Army. And I I don't even want to have term limits just so you can go from the House to the Senate. I think people should have term limits for elected office or working in government. Like maybe you have 10 years in government at all levels. That's it. Right. Get the hell. Go, you know, work and live in the private sector. So you actually live with the rules that you write. You can't like exempt yourself from all this stuff and ne- never be impacted by the consequences of the, the you know, the legislation that you're enacting, the laws that you're passing. You know, you need to be a real citizen like everybody else. And wasn't know? that wasn't that the idea from the founding fathers? Didn't they want George Washington to, you know, stay on as president? And he just said, no, no, no. Like, you know, I have to go back to my life. I have to go back to being a general. You know, it's not supposed to, it's not supposed to be a career. Yeah, well, right? well, not only, look, they would have made George Washington king. I mean, he he, he, he turned down a, the throne and then, you know, George Washington stepped down after two terms. But look, I think one of the reasons that the House of Representatives was up for election every two years is because they, they assumed that, that there'd be a lot of turnover. Right. They didn't think that people were going to stay there for 20 or 30 years <laughs> think for election every two years. you know. And the senators were there for six years because they were not even elected. They were appointed. So people thought the senators, which are, is an appointed position, they, they would be there longer. But look, it was supposed to be a, a, a citizen legislature. Nobody envisioned 
what we have today, career politicians, you know, going from college to government and then and then and then dying. I mean, look at that. John uh, Lewis just died. Right. Uh, but how old was he? Seventy what? I mean, how many people die in their house seats are there for 30 or 40 years? The only way to get rid of some of these guys is 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 to bury them. Right. I mean, that's they're going to they, they're in their seats for life. I mean, how how is this? Right. That these guys could be there until they die. Um, you know, they're not supposed to be appointed for life like the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. But, you know, but every once in a while, like AOC was able to get rid of one of these guys that was there. He had been there, you know, for a while. And but she did that by in, in the Democratic primary. You know, no Republican could have got rid of that guy. I forget what who, who, who she beat, but a Republican couldn't have beat him. <laughs> Yeah, he, he was in he there. He had been there forever, which is why he didn't take the threat of losing his seat seriously. But but it was within his own party. It was a primary that got him. Normally, normally nobody wants to primary the incumbents. That's right. All right, and Peter. He, you know, you have so much power when you have the incumbent seat. <laughs> you've got all the money and you've got all the donors. Yeah. All right. Look. Hey, yep, I'll talk to you all morning. You want to talk for another three hours? No, we I can talk for another three clock. hours. I just realized it's almost eleven o'clock. Shit, I got to get going. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm I can go for as long as you want, but I know you have a life. I don't, so I'll be uh, I'll be courteous and let you go. Thank you so much for uh, giving two and a half hours of your time this morning. My listeners appreciate it. I appreciate it. Please run for president, uh, and uh, and we'll talk soon, buddy. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. Have a good day. All right. That was the one, the only, Mr. Peter Schiff. Uh, the man himself. Love listening to him. Love hearing what he got to say. Hopefully uh, you guys learned something today. It is 11 o'clock in the morning now on a Sunday. I have shit to do. So folks, I am out of here. Peace.